Hey, we're going again with my friend Tig Fong. Tig, thank you very much for coming down, brother. Hey, yo, my pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah, hey, listen, Tig, you are number 25 on Going Again podcasts. So let's, uh, let's clink these glasses and have a sip of this delightful scotch. All right. Cheers, guys. Cheers, D. Cheers, D. Congratulations. Cheers. I see you raising your imaginary glass in there. Yeah, totally. <laughs> in my head. Okay. So, Tig, um, you're an actor, you're a director, you're a stuntman, stunt coordinator, you're a martial arts expert, scuba diver, world traveler. Oh, my God. Is there anything you don't do? I don't do dishes. Oh. I do do dishes, in fact. <laughs> um, no, there's a lot of things I don't do because I run out of time. And, and sadly, I came to this revelation when I think I was 10 that I would run out of life. Yeah. I, I cried about it. I cried about it for days, actually. Really? Yeah, no, for real, for real. At, at the age of 10, I'm like, I want to learn how to play piano. Uh, I want to be a marine biologist. I want to... And I, I just kind of like had all these things I thought I wanted to do. I, I wanted to be in film and do martial arts, you know, and I'm like, wait a minute, I'm never going to live long enough to get all this stuff done. I was, I was yeah. distraught. I was actually distraught. Wow. So yeah. you had to pick and choose. I, I have had to pick and choose uh, a lot. So how did the piano lessons go? Uh, never got to that. My, <laughs> my parents, uh, they did indulge me in violin. Yeah. Yeah. I did play like all the way up to like a... A violin, uh, Nova Scotia Junior Orchestra. Really? Thing, yeah, yeah. That was a long time ago. Wow. Do you yeah. still you do dabble Can, in it at all? I do not play violin, but I, I do I play to another. Own one. Oh, okay. Well, I, <laughs> I will not demonstrate anything for you today. Uh, I I do play another four stringed instrument now, however, which is the bass, electric mm -hmm. bass. So, yeah. so I'm still dabbling musical. in music. Nice. I think it's important. I think it's uh, it's one of those things. Um, they say that really help with neuroplasticity in adults. Uh, things like learning another language, things like learning music or a musical instrument. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to do. Right Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Andrew's a guitar player, singer, songwriter. Yes, yeah. I know yeah, that. Actually. Yeah, yeah, That's right. Yeah. yeah. So. And I bought a pan flute. A pan flute. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I think that the pan flute is the. Second oldest woodwind in the world. Yes. I play the really? oldest woodwind in the world, which is what? Oh my oh, god. Oh, just a second. The oldest woodwind was it a bottle? I have no idea. <laughs> like just a stick? Well. <laughs> but woodwind. No, yeah, so no. you're blowing in it. It's you, um, you are, yes. Is it is it like a, a like a recorder, a flute kind of a thing? No. Oh man! Let's go. I'll, 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 I'll let you off the hook. I'm not going to let you guess. <laughs> Twenty questions. Uh, it's the didgeridoo. There are cave paintings. Oh sure, cave yeah, paintings yeah. of uh, didgeridoos, uh, and I, I, I do the, play that. That's the big thing that goes. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah, the one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wish it's, you would uh, have Australian brought that. Oh shit! Well, I, mean, <laughs> I, 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 I could have if you have me back on your fiftieth show. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I'll bring it. That's a trip. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it's um, really cool. The, the the trickiest thing about it, other than making the sound, which is uh, by, you know a labial sort of vibration thing, that's not the hard part. I don't think. I think the hard part is uh, the circular breathing, because you have to continue making a sound, uh, you know, while you inhale, but you make the sound from exhaling. Um, 
Incidentally, what? incidentally, <laughs> there is a, another woodwind player that does this, which is our oboe players. Oboe players also use circular breathing. And the method by which this happens is similar to like uh, bagpipes. So in bagpipes, you inflate the bag. Right. And, you know, you see the bagpipe player, they're squeezing the bag while they're inflating it. And then as the, the, there's a constant force of air traveling over the reeds that they are playing. So right. that's the constant bagpipe sound. For a didgeridoo player or an oboe player, uh, the bag is your cheeks. So you have to fill your cheeks with air. And so then as you're inhaling or exhaling, you can still continually blow out with your cheeks while you take a breath in. It's a really interesting thing. Well, yeah, me, man, I'm it, standing over here at flabbergasted. Holy crap. It took me three days of just Constant. constantly doing it. And uh, one of the ways you can do it is just by taking a straw and putting it in a glass full of water and trying to get that the bubble, constant bubble constant going bubble. while inflating your cheeks and, ex and, and deflating your cheeks and inhaling and exhaling. Well, there goes my weekend. Three days. There you go. Okay, I want to see it, uh, you know. <laughs> oh That's a bit mind-bending to think about, actually. Where where is the didgeridoo most used? Where is it most? Uh... Well, it's it's its origins are uh, it's an Aboriginal Australian instrument. Right. Okay. Yeah. And is it used in a band? There are bands that uh, use didgeridoo sounds. Uh, a lot of them are not surprisingly Australian bands that might use it, and I'm sure that there are other sort of more eclectic bands that might use it. Yeah, yeah. it's not heard often, mind you. It's very cool. Yeah. yeah. I, I hear Dustin Faith always using his. I yeah, I've seen on his, videos uh, of Dustin. Yeah. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I had no idea. He just sits on a couch and, <laughs> and wails on this. I thing. had no idea. I posted a couple uh, things way back uh, <laughs> of just me playing on it, but I guess maybe I should do it again. I'll have to challenge. Yeah. Yeah, challenge Dustin, Dustin. to a dig off. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming, Dustin. It's coming. Cool. Right. That'd be, that'd so be where, awesome. where are you from originally? I'm born, why not here? This is not Toronto. Born in Toronto, grew up on the East Coast. Okay. And uh, came back here. Yeah. Now, I did notice on uh, your Instagram, you have a bit of a Hawaiian theme going on. Hawaiian theme. To some degree, right? Well, uh, I'm adopted and uh, my origins or my ancestry is apparently uh, Chinese Polynesian. So I am a API, which is an uh, Asia Pacific Islander. Okay. okay. Yeah, and you know, so that's hence the hence the ink on my yeah. body, which I started collecting a couple of years ago. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's very very cool. nice. And your dog's name is Maui. And my dog's name is Maui. And he's well, beautiful. Yes, thank you. He's you could have brought him. He's a, he's a looker. I could have. I don't know if he would have left us alone, but you know. <laughs> we had one guest that brought her hunting dog. Oh, right on. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Great. Cool. Uh, yeah. I, I love the opportunity to travel with him whenever I can. He's a he's a he's a he's a wonderful companion. Right on. That's so now, cool. You just got back from a trip. I did. I Your just got... photos are incredible. Ah, are you talking about Paris or are you talking about well, mm, Japan? The the photo of the, the Louvre, the, the uh, pyramid, is incredible, but the sharks in Japan. Yeah. Photo of the Louvre is just an iPhone shot. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you can do amazing things with... Uh, camera phones i did not bring a like a, an adult camera with me um and you know what they say i mean the best camera is the one you have with you and, mm -hmm. and we all have cameras with us nowadays so Absolutely. Uh, I, I saw it when i was there rainy night and all that and i'm like ooh, this is really interesting i need to i need to frame something up here so uh, thank you I'm, I'm i'm glad you like that picture the sharks in um 
Japan, it's a little bit more of an involved process, as you might imagine, to try to get images of anything underwater. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, years ago, I think 2007, when I first started diving, you know, I went down there and I went, oh, look at all this cool stuff. I really must take pictures and bring them up and kind of share them, at least with my friends, you know, and at that time I already had a background uh, in uh, photography on land, like studio photography and sports photography and so on. So I thought, hey, no problem. I'm just going to buy this point and shoot camera. I'm going to stick it in a housing. I'm going to go down, take pictures. I did. Hundreds and hundreds of blurry, <laughs> unsaturated, like just lousy pictures. And that's when I had the understanding or came to the understanding that it's not intuitive. Taking your um, on-land photography abilities down below. I mean, sure, some of the basic knowledge of how cameras work and so on still applies and light. But you need to learn so much more to take, I think, effective or beautiful pictures underwater and that that process was several years in the making to get to uh, the level of images that i do now yeah it's well, amazing no they are incredible if, if anyone watching where can they see them online uh, on yeah instagram right and i do put them i have a couple instagram accounts a couple for me one for my dog uh <laughs> and the one where i post my like my whole collection <clears throat> of choice photos is on at tigfong on instagram and I will post some from time to time just on my, my regular Instagram where I talk about, uh, you know, everything from shoes to restaurants to the occasional travel photography uh, at Flying yeah, we'll Knee Films. to the shoes. Yeah, well, Andy's yeah. a bit of a shoe freak too. Oh, it? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah I love, I, your shoe collection is, it's beautiful, man. Oh, it's taken a turn for the dark side. It's gotten worse. <laughs> I, 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 I am, uh, as everyone knows, if they look at my Instagram page or know me in person, that I'm a John Flubog devotee. Uh, he's a Canadian designer, which is wonderful. Uh, and then I discovered another huh. designer. Yeah. And started buying his stuff. And it, uh, it's, that's not good, I tell you. It's, it's, it's not good. I, I, I need work. I might have to start a GoFundMe page. Uh, I hear you. The designer is Rick Owen. Uh, and it's, uh, yeah, it's a... Uh, it's, uh, Next level, I guess. I think my collection's yeah. a little less expensive. Than are you yours. A, are you a, is you, are you a shoe head or a sneaker head? I'm more of a. Well, that's a that's a good question. Right. I suppose I feel like I'm a bit in between. I don't like anything too uh, too freaky or like too high, like up my ankles or anything. Oh, okay. I'm like Make boots. Like right. con I like Converse and Vans. I'm pretty simple, but uh -huh. I'm a, I'm a skateboarder. So ah. I'm I'm obsessed with the the sort of the flat shoe. Got it. Uh, yeah, that sort of simple look. But yeah, big oh, time. Uh, that's a big world out there of, of those looks. I you know that that I've seen anyway. So. There is. I do have a couple of fancy things. Uh, you know what? Because I I love getting dressed up and, and going out. I just don't do it that often. So I think I we all my forgot collection how. Is sort of uh, I agree. Yeah, pandemic, that's, you know? I agree with True. that. Yeah. True. Yeah. 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 Yours are amazing, man. Uh, thank really, you. Really. Thank you. Yeah. So tell me about your trip to Japan and, and, and shooting sharks. Yeah. Well, my trip to Japan, I was looking forward to it for some time. Um, there are several species of sharks there that can be seen. Uh, you can choose. Uh, I, I went with um, owner-operator of uh, Big Fish Expeditions, uh, Andy Murch. He's a friend of mine as well. Uh, he puts, uh, puts together these shark expeditions all around the world. Uh, last year, I went to South Africa with him on a really cool... Uh, shark expedition that took us um, up the 
east coast from Cape Town all the way up to Durban. That was a really cool one. Uh, this one, Japan in the winter. He also has a trip there, Japan in the summer. And uh, with the changing temperatures of the water, you 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 get different sharks, different hmm. rays, and so on. Um, I wanted to do the summer one, but you know it's. Uh, it's hit or miss with what, our with our industry. Yeah, you're busy. So, well, what's what's the difference between the summer and the winter? Uh, just the water temps, right? So, oh, okay. Right, sure. yeah. So the water temps are a bit different, and and then the species kind of migrate and move around. Uh, in winter, it's a good time to go see the um, uh, Japanese banded hound shark. Um, so I uh, we did go there and we did see them. Uh, I mean, as every as the rule no as well as the rule goes, as you should know, if you're going on expedition, it's not. An aquarium it's not a zoo right sure. you're never guaranteed necessarily of seeing anything that you intended to go see and that has happened to me several times but um the hound sharks uh, are baited uh and they had been habituated to this one specific dive site off of chiba in japan um as a fascinating story behind that too because uh in Japan, it's really interesting. The water is pretty much owned by the fishermen there. So the waters in general and the shores, you're not allowed to do anything without permission from them. Uh, so the dive operator wanted to set up a dive shop there. He had to go and ask permission of the local fishermen. And he got permission. And then they said, hey, could you um, bait uh, these banded hound sharks so that they come to you and they don't keep fouling our nets? Interesting. Okay. Right. Hmm. I, I, I mention this only because there is a debate around baiting sharks for oh. the purposes of shark tourism around the world. There are, there are naysayers, there are people who say, no, no, this is, this is uh, interfering with a shark's natural behavior. Right. Uh, this, in, like in places like Florida, uh, there's even been um, you know, arguments to say that this may have uh, triggered shark attacks on people because we are now, these sharks are associating people with food, Right. So now, that's why I wanted to mention this particular thing in, in, in Japan. So this was actually the fisherman requesting uh, that this uh, yeah yeah that this diver dive shop op uh, operator actually try and, and and attract the sharks away from the fishing area. Sure. So uh, you know he started he he threw some stuff down in the water and sure enough, eventually a couple of them showed up, and then pretty much the minute he slipped into the water, boom, gone. They take off. Okay. And that's something you should know about sharks in general. Almost all species of sharks, they don't want to be around us. They don't want to be near us. They move away from us, not towards us. Um, so that presented a bit of a challenge for him. So it took him, so he had to keep baiting the sharks, baiting the sharks and slipping in the water. And eventually they would hang around a little bit longer, like one or two, and then more would hang out and then more would hang out. And finally he was able to get a congregation of banded hound sharks to hang around while he was in the water in scuba. Uh, then he expanded that by taking his first group. And sure enough, the first, the group slips into the water, boom, all the sharks are gone again. Wow. So it took, uh, if you saw one of the pictures, there's this like tornado of hound sharks and rays uh, that I posted uh, on my Instagram. It took him five years uh, to habituate the sharks enough that they would all come to the bait, the bait boxes, and then tolerate, well, basically ignore all the scuba divers, let's say about eight people in total, like milling about in the water and, you know, camera flashes and all that stuff. It took him five years to, wow. to establish... That uh, he wasn't a threat. 
that he wasn't a threat, that we weren't a threat. And, and in order to be able to have this event that is now an attraction for divers all across Japan and around the world who now come, if you want to see this species of, of shark, this is where you go. Is That's it a large fish? Uh, it's, yeah. called, it's called Bami, B-O-M-M-I, Bami Dive Shop uh, in Chiba. And uh, they have, well, I think it's the only reliable banded hound shark encounter uh, in Japan. Is it a big shark? Is it a big shark? No, it's about four feet. Okay. Yeah. Um, for me, that's a big fish. Very cute. It's a big fish for sure. Yeah. It's uh, no known attacks on humans. Uh, you know, uh, this is a funny thing. If you do a search about sharks, like one of the, uh, just a Google shirts search about sharks. Uh, one of the first things that just comes up automatically is, you know, what's the most dangerous shark? Mm -hmm. What's, what's the, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, uh, Great well, white. yeah, sure. Right. And it's a litany of like all these, the top five, like predator sharks that have been known to attack humans. It's just fascinating that that is the first thing that comes up because it's this bizarre availability heuristic somewhere between 90 to hundred million sharks are taken out of the water every year for shark finning and for other products that people take. And this is far faster than the doubling rate or reproductive rate of all sharks. All sharks are slow reproducers because they are a top predator. Uh, they're not a, they're not, they're, a, not they're not a food fish. Right? I see. I see. Right? Okay. So they re all sharks uh, will produce relatively very slowly. Uh, great whites mm -hmm. among the slowest. Uh, just as an illustration, we used to think, I think that the, uh, Males had to be five and females had to be eight, but I think it's more like males have to be 10 or 15, females have to be 25. It's something like that. I, wow. I would have to check that. But, but you think about how long it takes for them to reach sexual maturity, right? And then if you're finning them, you, you take them out of the water and then that, that breeding female is gone yeah yeah right so it wouldn't take more than a couple of years of actively going after any one of these sharks before you the populations will absolutely collapse which is what we're witnessing right now uh in the oceans and if you remove a top predator uh then you can cause ecosystems to collapse as well sure because they're very important to have for the balance of a healthy marine ecosystem um yeah, so it's interesting how when you do a search about sharks that it comes up like it's this very anthropocentric. Well, which ones which ones of them eat us? And it's like they're they're on average in any given year. Some years it gets a little bit higher, some years a bit lower. It's about six to eight fatal shark attacks per year. Usually by great whites, true. Uh, or possibly by bull sharks, I think would be the next likely candidate, or maybe tiger sharks. So why would they attack then? Uh, as a mistake. Really? In just about every case, uh, you can tell because it is a 4,000-pound fish, fully grown. Um, very easily could devour a human being. They, they, they eat sea lions that can weigh sure. a couple hundred pounds, no problem. Um, but what happens in almost all cases that you, as you read about, there will be a bite and then there will be a release. And very often, if it's fatal, I mean, you're in the water, you just got bit by a 4,000-pound fish. Yeah. You're probably going to bleed out. Mm -hmm. uh, white sharks often hit their prey, like sea lions and seals, um, in the lower legs, uh, or in the lower part of the body, rather, uh, usually trying to sever the tail and the femoral artery, because that prevents it from being able to move, and it also causes it to bleed out. Because you have to remember that as a predator... 
Um, there's also the danger of getting injured while you're hunting. Yeah, if you ever see a seal's mouth when they open or mm. a sea lion, it's like it's like a tiger or a, or a dog at least, right? If it turns <clears> around <throat> and bites that shark in the eye, that shark is not going to live very long now. It could be a 30-year-old shark and now it's over. Really? Within, okay. within a matter of weeks or months, it will probably die. So it has to find ways to also protect itself. And so the way it does that, like white sharks, for instance, <clears throat> it's a high-speed ambush predator. So in South Africa, one of the methods they use is they swim down very deep. You've probably seen it on Shark Week. And then they rapidly accelerate upward and they hit the, um, in this case, Cape Fur Seals from below at a very high speed and high velocity. It knocks them into the air. They go spinning. Uh, so they're either stunned by the impact if there isn't an actual bite or if there's an actual bite, um, then there is damage usually again to the lower part of their body. They start to bleed out. Shark circles comes back and finishes it. Same thing happens Whoa. to people. You're a swimmer. You're a surfer on a surfboard with your legs dangling over. Um, very often, and people really need to understand this, it's like some of the most common bites in places like Florida and Australia are, you know, spearfishers. You see what they do, they go down and they spear some fish and then they put them on a stringer. You're literally tying a dead animal. It's like tying a dead caribou after you've killed it in the woods and then walking through puma territory. What do you think might happen? Makes sense to okay. me. <laughs> so, so this is what happens. A white shark smells it. Uh, they can, their sense of smell is phenomenal. All sharks are amazing. They sometimes call them swimming noses because of their incredible uh, olfactory ability. They have the same five senses we do. Uh, plus they have two more. Uh, they have the ability to uh, sense electrical activity uh, through organs that they have dispersed in their face called the ampullae of Lorenzini. These detect microcurrents. Um, and what is that doing? What exactly is that doing? So uh, fish, when they are injured, uh, will give off a different current a microcurrent uh, oh. in their in their bodies if they're injured, sure. so they're able to sense that. Uh, um, here, hold on, I'll, I'll pull this up right now very quickly because I happen to have. It's absolutely fascinating. It is. I might go swimming in a pool later. Oh yeah, so uh, they have the ability to detect electro fluctuation as low as one ten millionths of a volt. Wow. Uh, which is the equivalent to electrical gradient of a AA battery with wires placed in the sea one mile apart oh my god that's right just so it, it's yeah. quite it's quite astounding you begin to understand why i'm so fascinated with these animals because they're just a spectacular you know 60 million years of evolution and they've barely changed because they have perfected the art of being a shark you know what i mean yeah it, it's it's so amazing so yes they uh ambush predator type sharks like angel sharks i took some pictures of angel sharks that i posted um, they don't swim around and look for their food typically, or well, they can do that, but they typically bury themselves in sand and they sit there and they wait for fish to come swimming by. And they will recognize those fish by 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 sight, of course. Um, but they will also they can also feel those fish in terms of electrical activity. So depending on the shark, it may rely more or less on on this ability. But it's a common feature of sharks. Sharks also have another sensory organ called the lateral line. It's a bunch of fluid-filled sacs that run down the side of its body, and that can detect uh, minute changes in pressure. So when it's hunting, when it gets very close to something, 
and that thing is moving and they're basically whipping around to get it, they can feel that pressure. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite amazing. So, you know, at least seven senses, <clears throat> and, and possibly more. Sense. And you like to swim with them. I do. I do. <laughs> and again, because to, to reiterate, they aren't interested in us. Right. They're interested in their food. Generally speaking, depending on the species, you will need to attract them to the area that you are in because they're going to swim away from you, not towards you. So if you put some food down and they have been, you know, habituated enough to put up with you being there as they search for their food, you get to have a look. If you are a photographer, like I am, you get to take pictures because it takes time to get good mm -hmm. pictures. You're not going to get it on the first shot. Sure. You're going to need to make adjustments. So you really want that shark to hang around a little bit. And that typically is how you get them to. You need to interest them somehow. That must be incredibly rewarding. It is incredibly rewarding. I, I, I love doing it. And for two reasons. One, it would be enough for me to witness the animal in its environment with my with my eyes, these cameras over here. Sure. Um, but I feel that if I can take a an arresting picture, a picture that people want to see, then they will look at that picture and I get to slip in a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of awareness of this beautiful animal and maybe just maybe one more person cares about this much um, maligned creature that is about to disappear off the face of the planet. A hundred percent. And incredible. I would imagine that a lot of people don't necessarily get to enjoy the experience that you do. Right. And they are certainly utilizing your experience to sort of live their own. Yeah, that's what I hope. I hope they can live vicariously through me. I'm happy to talk about it ad nauseum and, you know, share, share the pictures, <laughs> share, as, as, as you can see, as I've just demonstrated. Well, speaking of nausea, uh, what, what, what word did you just use? Oh, good segue. Nausea. Go. Where are you going? With it? No, no. <laughs> no. Um, um, but uh, I want to ask when uh, the shark fascination first started. But earlier, you did say at ten years old, maybe you were wanting to be a marine biologist. I don't know if you just made that up on the spot or I if did that's not. very real. I did not just make that up. No, um, I at around I think eight sort of became fascinated with nature. It was an escape for me. Uh, we had moved from the city to the suburbs. My parents thought that would be a better place for me because I was already experiencing uh, a lot of racial violence uh, as a kid in the city. And what they didn't understand is putting me out into the suburbs where it was even... Um, Hmm. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was even it was, ah. it was even less of a mix that was actually worse for me. So my my escape was to, you know, go into the woods and go into like a nearby pond or lake, or whatever, and just kind of hang out there by myself and kind of observe things. And that quickly, because of my ASD and things like that, it it triggered an interest. And once an interest is triggered in me, then I tend to go whole hog into it and um, study it. So I guess I became an amateur naturalist slash biologist or whatever at an early age and, and just kept adding to that knowledge. So does your yeah. love exceed sharks then? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. It so it's, yeah. it's just nature in general. It's just like I say, I discovered photography underwater and wanted to shoot. The first things I was shooting were macro subjects, so subjects that are very small um like little tiny shrimps no one and, loves minnows and stuff right well uh, i don't it's know that, man that like I, I started shooting nudibranchs uh, <laughs> uh nudibranchs are they're well they're a sea slug that sounds very unglamorous but 
but they very met. There's over 2,000 species around the world uh, in tropical regions, usually, um, save for a couple. And they're interesting little critters, and they often come in extremely bright colors, like little pieces of candy. They're really interesting. They have, wow. yeah, they have, they often have little plumes on their back ends which are actually their gills, so they breathe out of their butts, uh, and they often have little horns in their head. That's what they look like, they look like horns. They're called rhinophores, and that's actually their, their smell organs. Huh. Uh, a lot of them, maybe all of them, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them are hermaphroditic, so they're able to breed with any other individual. Yeah, they're pretty neat, so they're pretty fun. So I was traveling around the world, I was shooting a lot of those and a lot of other little cool, cool little things. Um, and then at some point, I, I, I decided I wanted to shoot uh, bigger animals. Uh, so I'm interested in marine mammals. I have a bunch of seal stuff I've shot and, and uh, some whales now that I've shot. Uh, but sharks, yeah, sharks are fascinating. And again, uh, I was kind of introduced through that uh, six years ago uh, when I saw this trip that was available through uh, Big Fish Expedition. So I went on my first one that was South, South Africa. To see uh, about six species of sharks that were there, including white sharks, which I did not see on that trip. So that's a perfect example of how mm. you don't necessarily Can't get what you think you get. There's no guarantees. Uh, <clears throat> the reason why that happened, by the way, is we were going, we were starting in um, Cape Town, uh, which is when they do uh, that special air jaws and you know on Shark Week. So there's an island there. Uh, it's called. It has colony of about 90,000 seals on it. It's called, guess what? Seal Island. Oh. Uh, hmm. in, in the bay, in False Bay, uh, off of uh, Cape Town. It's not really a bay. Right. Well, <laughs> it's actually a bay, but uh, it got the name False Bay. I'm, I'm, I, I, I can't quite remember that there's a history behind that, but I, I won't relay the story because I don't remember it well enough. Uh, anyhow, um, because of that massive seal colony, uh, white sharks normally go there, especially during pupping season. And they just kind of hang around that area, mill about, and they just pick off all these seals in this very dramatic fashion that they develop only in this part of the world, which is, you know, rocketing up. Where they breach them. Where they breach, right. So that's the place in the planet where you go see breaching sharks. Oh, wow. So I was super excited to to go see these, you know, crazy breaching white sharks uh, among, I guess, again, a bunch of other species. And then when I got there, I learned that just weeks before... Um, a pair of a small pod, it's a pair of orca, mm. had showed up in False Bay and started predating uh, the local sharks there. So uh, the white sharks left. Uh, oh, shit. Yeah, a, a marine biologist or somebody discovered the stomach of a white shark that had washed up on the beach and they could recognize that as predation from, uh, from an orca. And then uh, the other species that I most wanted to see uh, was a cow shark. Uh, there's a there's a was a small endemic population of cow sharks that used to hang around a kelp forest really near uh, False Bay, and they had found a half dozen of them with their heads bitten off and their livers sucked out of their bodies. Whoa! And the body just left behind, and that is a typical apparently predation uh, characteristic of orcas. So they're very picky eaters. What? Bite the heads off and suck the livers out. Yeah, but they're living that uh, carnivore diet. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. With, the, yeah, with right? the liver thing, yeah, man. The, oh, like liver man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Liver king. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it's liver king. Um, but but yeah. So I, as a result, I saw no white sharks on that you know very far away trip, 
and I saw no Damn. no cow sharks. Uh, I did see, however, several other species of cat sharks, and I saw, I think, my first blue shark. I'm allergic um, to cat sharks. And a few things. I, I, I get that, right? I, <laughs> I, I took an antihistamine before I went down. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so uh, I just thought it'd be cool to shoot something bigger than a, a one-inch long sea slug. So, uh, yeah, I got onto sharks. And I'll be onto them for a while because there's so many more to see. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. How, how many species of shark is there? there are You've over, named several that I've never heard of in my life. There are over 400 species of sharks in the world. Wow. Um, it's funny because I, I've had started, I have, I'm currently uh, shelving it, but I will get back to a, a documentary uh, uh, on Andy Murch. I, I had asked him if I could do one on him. Uh, his first question was, why would you want to do that? I'm not very interesting. And it's like, you're not interesting. I get interesting. that same statement from people I ask to come on the podcast. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this guy's last job before opening up his own, um, you know, shark dive travel company was he was a mini sub test pilot. Very cool. You know what I mean? Mini and then, and then now, and now, now as an, as, as a shark enthusiast and he's well positioned having a company like this, he has photographed more living uh, ray and shark species than any other human on the planet. Andy Murch. Andy Murch. So I, 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 think it's, wow. I think it's fascinating. Uh, I went to Tahiti with him. Uh, he photographed number 103, which was a sicklefin lemon shark in Tahiti. Uh, he has since photographed a few more new ones. Um, but at that time, I also came to learn that trying to be a one-person operation you know, going on a dive, uh, but also operating camera, also, you know, sound and all this stuff. And I'm like, I think I'm killing myself mm. trying to do this while also enjoying what was my time off as well from work. Right. right. So, and I realized I wasn't enjoying my time off. I went there else. So I'm like, okay, okay, I need to revisit this. So I, I, for the time being, I have paused it, but I do intend on circling back to that with a little bit of money and a crew and and to hire him to go on trips where it's just him and the crew versus attending a trip where he has guests and so on, which you have to be considerate of right. and so on, you know. Um, so hmm. I got it started. Uh, I, I paused it for now, but we will get back to that because uh, he's a fascinating individual and uh, I support what he does. It's obviously a very fascinating subject. Yeah. yeah that's very yeah. cool. Have, do you shoot video at the same time you're shooting? I've just stuff? started um, shooting video. Uh, video is challenging. Well, there's no previs underwater. Right? There's no previs. You can't yeah, <laughs> choreograph. No. Um, no, the issue being is that when you are, when you are shooting any marine anything uh, creature, you know, you're going to bring strobes down or, well, flashes like on a camera, right? Mm -hmm. And that strobe is... is um, storing energy from the battery in a capacitor and it gets all released at once and in that moment that 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 split second that it's released you have an, a large amount of light that comes out of it but for that split second when you're shooting video to achieve the same thing you need massive amounts of power and massive amounts of light to to get moving images of the same quality uh okay. to illustrate this like i don't know if you guys ever watch blue planet yeah. Right. But I remember there was a, f in the story, there was a story that they shot of mandarin fish. They're very pretty, uh, sort of brightly colored little banded fish. And in the evenings, just when the sun is setting, 
they come up out of the coral and they in the during the mating period and they do this little dance around each other yeah, yeah right i, I don't know if you remember that, that right yeah. now if you and it's it's really beautiful and they saw it, they shot it in this beautiful like god rays and it's beautifully lit and it's just just a gorgeous you know with some wonderful orchestral music uh, to, to back it up, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but when you watch the making uh, of Blue Planet at the end, and there's a little featurettes, I think it's, it's, very, uh, it's very educational because what you'll see is now you, another diver videographer has turned around and is shooting back on the people who are shooting the mandarin fish. And what you'll see is you'll see a diver with a, uh, like a $50,000 red epic at that time, there's newer ones now, but that's what that was at then. Uh, in another, in a $30,000 Gates housing, on a rebreather so that he doesn't make, uh, oh, I think it's a he, doesn't, make, doesn't make any bubbles, so it doesn't disturb the fish. Mm -hmm. And then four support divers, here, 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 and here, oh, also my. all on rebreathers, also with HMI lamps that they were carrying like this, swimming alongside the, the videographer with with power going up to a boat above that had generators. So that's what they needed the to, to create this incredible imagery. And I, you can still shoot without all that stuff. You can bring video lights down and so on. But what I'm trying to say is that if you want world-class totally. underwater videography, <clears throat> it's going to be harder than you think, and you probably can't do it by yourself. Wow, yeah. No, that sounds... Well, we've all shot underwater, so we know. Right, what the what it takes. There you go. And the time yeah, yeah. that yeah, it takes. Exactly. So that's that's really sort of in a nutshell why I don't do a lot of video. But if you're shallow, if you're in the top ten feet, uh, twenty feet, or you know, if you're shooting small subjects that you can easily light, uh, certainly uh, uh, video can be interesting. And I, I do intend on exploring uh, more of that. When you're shooting something like that, do you feel like it takes away from the overall experience at all, or it does a bit. Yeah, yeah, I knew it. It does, it does. <laughs> and, you know, I've I've talked to people about this, and like, wouldn't you just want to go down there and just experience it? And I'm like, yeah, but that FOMO, you know, you <laughs> never know when something is gonna happen. Capturing nature is really a beautiful right, thing. yeah, and it's it's that moment where you don't have it. But I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the thing. Like, I do lose a bit, maybe at times. Uh, a lot of the times, if I've like in the case of the hound sharks, for instance. You know, you go down there, uh, and they're they're very easy to photograph because they are circling, and there's so many individuals. In fact, the hard part is singling out an individual for that single shot that I usually like to have before I shoot a group shot. And then there's so many divers kind of milling about that it's hard to get a clean shot mm. without a diver. And later on, I will want a diver in the shot. You know, so you're gonna it's gonna take some time to get all those things. But once I've checked off my list and I, I've reviewed my photographs, let's say each evening, and I, I know I've hit it, I got like the shot or a or a series of good shots. A lot of time, I'll just kind of hang the camera and just more watch the behavior of the animal. So I try not to miss um, the experience as well as much as yeah. I can. Yeah, so I try not to miss it. The only time I did something similar was <clears throat> when Andrew was born. Um, <laughs> I, okay. I, I was shooting and and i got great shots but i'm shooting i'm choosing angles and getting shots and then by the time you were born i missed the whole thing yeah but you had it i had great shots on, believe me i've got shots, it right? fortunately i came out with a top hat and a cane so <laughs> i was ready <laughs> right yeah nobody wants to see these <laughs> 
And that's fascinating. So um, from this 10-year-old kid, how did you get into acting? Like, what, what brought you to the film business? Ah, then you got to go back a little bit further. But um, growing up in the East Coast... Uh, we're, we're about in the East Coast. I grew up in Halifax. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and so I already said that, uh, you know, my background is Asian Pacific Islander. My parents who adopted me are Chinese uh, mm -hmm. from mainland China. Um, apparently, a, at some time before I was born, uh, there was a small Chinese community in Halifax, but uh, there was not one there uh, by the time I came along. So there's no community. There's no place to hang around. There's no, no one to sort of identify with. Um, and so the only, and, and there's nothing, you know, on TV or in film or whatever. There's no people that look like me, if you will, mm -hmm. uh, until I sort of came across, you know, uh, Hong Kong martial arts films and, you know, seeing Bruce Lee and seeing Jet Li and, and to some degree Jackie Chan, although I was more enthralled with the, the former two, um, really inspired me because I'm like, oh, that's especially actually Bruce Lee because he is, uh, actually Eurasian. Like he's not, he's not oh. fully Chinese. His, his features are not classically Chinese. If you, if you look, some people don't notice that or realize that they're seeing that. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, somebody in his family was German, his grandmother. Yeah. Something like that. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, seeing that and seeing, a a strong, uh, well, you know, male, character doing martial arts and standing up for themselves and so on uh, was inspiring to me because by that time I had already been exposed to the public school system and unfortunately the rampant racism that existed there and within the community uh, on the East Coast. So uh, that was a bit of escapism for me to be able to watch that, but it was also an inspiration for me to one, want to do martial arts and two, want to do it in film. Now, that was a problem because my parents were not at all supportive of that. Um, <laughs> if you know anything about immigrant Asian parents, and I mean Asian, like Japanese, Chinese, uh, East Indian, uh, there are only three acceptable uh, professions, and that is a doctor, a lawyer, and uh, for some bizarre reason, an architect. Um, <laughs> so uh, it might be a different mix for different families, but, but you know, doctor or lawyer for sure. So anyway, my parents were not having it. Didn't want me straying somewhere uh, to become, I guess, I don't know, a dumb jock. I don't know, the, the Asian version of that. Uh, so they were not supportive <laughs> of it. And I had to wait until uh, really in my teens until I could even start sort of finding where I could go and train and paying for it on my own because they weren't going to pay for <clears> it. Uh, and so that's why the sort of naturalist side of me came first because I could do that on my own at like eight or ten years of age. and. Mm -hmm and learn about things on my own then. So that actually sort of, my love of martial arts uh, happened, but in a, in a visual way, in a desire kind of way when I was quite young. But I had to wait uh, to get to that. At any rate, I did start doing martial arts. Uh, I did eventually find my way back to uh, Toronto when I was old enough. I escaped <laughs> the East Coast. Are your folks still out there? Uh, my folks are both gone now. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. But no, that's okay. Uh, I, I did bring them here and uh, and uh, bought them a place to live, and and you know they lived out the rest of their lives here. So wow. it's it's okay. It's uh, it's it's good. Um, wow. 
you know, and I, and I will say that's like one of the things I'm thankful for, for stunts is that, you know, without stunts, I would never have been able to do that. I mean, that right. paid for that. I have a mixed relationship with stunts in terms of how I feel about it for various reasons, but that was definitely a, a very good thing. Anyhow, uh, you know, I came here and, and I, again, I wanted to get into film. I didn't do the obvious thing, which probably would have been the best thing, which would have been to relocate down to LA and work as an illegal or something like that and try to find my way there. No, I came to Toronto on my way to Vancouver, didn't make it there, stayed here, and then just, long story short, fumbled and stumbled my way until I found my way into film as an actor, and but also doing action at the same time. So it was a, it was a long kind of a winding road to get into it. But by that point, I was had done martial arts most of my life, a couple different styles, uh, much like Randy. Uh, and, and, um, I'd also was a, at that point, a, a competitive bodybuilder. So I was unusually large for an Asian presenting male presenting person. Okay. I remember. Right. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. I, you knew me from back then. Yeah. So it was like two fifty, and I could yeah. like drop into uh, middle splits cold without yeah. a warm up. So no one was, wanted to sit beside him. That was, un, <laughs> that was unusual. I think for then, and, and, and that helped make me marketable. I, I had a, tiny piece of the market but it was almost a for sure thing um that if somebody wow. needed someone like that i would get in there and i would get that and that might only be like 10 days a year of work mind you right like the first few years were very lean did you experience say. a little bit of fame with what was happening fame in terms of i don't know you i know, getting these roles and once being this guy. once i did actually experience some fame. I tasted fame. It tastes like chicken. <laughs> nice. Uh, what I knew had, it. What had happened was, is I there was a, 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 a <clears throat> Indian producer came over, Bollywood producer came over, shot a movie uh, that I appeared in with Akshay Kumar. Uh, it was called Kaladio Kakiladi. And uh, I, I played a bad guy on the on the movie. I did a did a did a martial arts fight with him, like you know, in the end. Uh, as a part of the climax of that film. And then about a year later, uh, the same producer called me up and said, you know, what are you doing? Would you like to come to uh, Mumbai, to Bollywood proper, and do another film with Akshay? I'm wow. Like, yeah, sure. So after some, you know, finagling and, you know, uh, sorry, I, I mean, uh, um, uh, bargaining over, over cost and price and payment and so on, uh, you know, I got on a plane and I headed over there. When I this is the interesting part. So the, when I got there, I had a I had a I had a driver, and they would take us around and you know to go shopping or to get here and there. And the weird thing that I was experiencing was when I was, we would stop somewhere and I would get oh I want to go to this market and then all these people would start crowding around and then crowding around some more and then and then all of a sudden next thing you know you're surrounded by, and I'm not kidding, three hundred people all kind of pressing in on you. And then the driver would say, okay, you have to leave now. It's time to go. We have to go. And they would scurry me back to the car and I would leave. And then we would go somewhere else to like a shopping mall. The malls are a bit different there than here. But you go in there and then the same thing would start to happen and the owner would like close the shop and then just let us stay there and look at stuff ourselves. And you see all these people pressed against the window and I'm like, "Wow, what is going on? And then one day this happened and the producer's son was with me. And uh, he goes, oh, well, you don't know what's happening? Uh, and I'm like, no, I don't understand. He goes, so the movie that you did last year, uh, 
was the third highest grossing action film in Bollywood that year. Whoa. So you're famous here. Oh, wow. You know, ish, <laughs> right? As a bad guy. And I'm like, oh, and also you bastards, because I didn't know this when I was negotiating my rate. You know, I had no idea, right? True enough. Uh, so anyways, uh, that was kind of like a mild taste of fame, I suppose. There was certainly no fame to be had over here. Well, maybe you got to go back. Um, infamy, Bollywood, infamy, yeah. perhaps, but no, no fame is available to me here. <laughs> That's awesome. So then <clears throat> what? So I, I know that you stopped bulking up. Mm. Is that for acting or that for the stunts? That's for both. That's for both. Yeah. So I competed. Um, when I was training, I was not training for the purpose of competing. I was training because it's very much a reaction to my upbringing. It's a compensation. Mm -hmm. uh, it's that uh, meat suit of armor that I wanted to have. I, I did want to be, it wasn't enough for me to be effective as a fighter, as a martial artist, to be able to hurt people, I guess, if I need to. Um, I also needed to be physically look, look intimidating. Formidable. Yeah, I wanted to look formidable. I wanted to be left alone. Yeah, we had a similar conversation with Rob Archer. Yeah. So, uh, and that resulted in bodybuilding and then eventually, you know, in, in steroids, which they, they go hand in hand. I don't care what anybody says about that. I prefer to be honest. Uh, anyhow, so I got quite big and, 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 and then I thought, well, this is a bit weird to stick, you know, that much money in your ass without actually doing anything with it. I should probably compete. Uh, yeah. so I competed, I, I, I after ha having already been trained for a number of years, it's not normal. Usually people just kind of start competing as soon as they get something going. I waited a long time, but as a result, each show I would go to, like starting with the municipal to provincial to a regional to Canada. Um, I would always place in the top three in my division, let's say. So that always allowed me to go forward. So in, in as little as a year and a half, two years, I, I made it to the nationals. If I had won the nationals, thank God I didn't. <laughs> if I had won the nationals, I would have gotten my pro card. So I, I would have effectively been a pro bodybuilder. How good a pro bodybuilder, that's a different story because sure. I'm not that genetically gifted, but I would have been a pro nonetheless. Uh, but what happened in that day show, uh, the shows are typically split up in the, in the daytime. Everybody, everybody comes out who enters and then they get judged and then they pick out the top competitors for the evening because you can't have that many people. It's too long on an evening show anyway. So I made top five. During the day show, I was experiencing some symptoms and uh, wasn't feeling so well. Uh, I asked a friend of mine who was there who was taking care of another bodybuilder. He was a trainer. I said, hey, what do you think? What do you think? Uh, I feel weird, man. I, I don't, I don't, I feel nauseous and, um, but my legs are, I'm not drinking any water, but my legs look like they're full of water. Like I, what, what, what do you think I should do? He goes, I think you're just nervous. You need to go lie down. You need to go take another diuretic. I was taking furosemide at that time, 40 milligrams furosemide injectable. You need to take another diuretic, go lie down. Everything's going to be fine. Had I followed his advice, I wouldn't be here for this conversation. I would have died because, uh, as I thought about it, I'm like, uh, and I had asked uh, my girlfriend at the time who I was with, I asked her to sort of tap me on the back and she tapped me and, and I said, Hey, I said, tap me. Don't punch me. She goes, I just touched you on oh. your lower back. And I'm like, ah, okay, I'm getting dressed. We're going to the hospital. And she said, well, why? I go, well, because my kidneys are failing. 
Jesus. Oh my. So I went to the hospital. I went to triage. I explained that my kidneys were failing to which the nurse is like, well, how do you know that? So anyways, I won't bore you with the explanation of that, but you know, I have a background in this stuff. Um, But eventually they admitted me. I went in and sure enough, that's what it was. They had stopped working because my blood hematocrit had gone so high. In other words, you take all the water out of your blood and you're basically pumping molasses now through your bloodstream. And that molasses can't get through the nephrons in your kidneys. They can't too thick. So then your urea starts to build and that's the reason why you start feeling nausea and so on. So this is what happens when people have kidney failure and there's a reason why they need dialysis, right? So I basically put myself in that condition of needing dialysis. Now, what was happening to your legs? Uh, that was just water retention because I wasn't excreting any water anymore. I see, because I see. So my kidneys were not filtering my blood and they were also not removing any water from my blood, right, to be excreted. So, right. uh, so instead, the water was just pooling in my legs. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, um, you know, that's the... Anyhow, well, that happened. And they, they put me on IV fluids. I did not go on dialysis. Within a few hours, my kidney functions went to normal. Uh, needless to say, I missed uh, that competition that evening. <laughs> oh, no. Um, I decided that I would continue to compete. I would just go to my next show without taking diuretics. So I, and I had to go back to another show to requalify for the national. So I, w- I just stayed on my diet for another couple of months, went to the very next show. And at that show, I did not, my, did not place. For the first time ever in competing, I did not place. And, and, and even the judges came out to me and they said, you're probably disappointed. You know, you've already become a favorite with us and with the, with, you know, the fans that come here or whatever. And we think you look great, but you just didn't look prepared enough. is what they said and i have been dieting don't forget at this point i have been dieting for like probably like six months right so it's not like i wasn't prepared it's that i wasn't taking diuretics which almost killed me right so with that answer i realized that i was going to quit Wow. uh, because it wasn't worth my life to continue and this is the reason why i say thank goodness uh i didn't win because had i won that would have put my life on a path of pursuing professional bodybuilding and possibly having again a much shorter life and not being here today because i a lot of my friends that did go that route sadly are also not here today Mm -hmm. so i know several you know amateur top amateur or professional bodybuilders that are you know gone in their 40s and and so on so it's uh it's unfortunate unreal man it's difficult and somewhat dangerous uh sport and i throw air quotes up for sport because it's arguable that it is an actual sport per se um Hmm. Yeah. And so once I came, once I decided not to compete, I lost the reason to continue uh, taking performance enhancing drugs because I'm like, well, what is really the point and why should I put my body through that? And once I made that decision and I thought also I'm limited to the amount of stunt roles that I can have. I understand that limited by race, but also limited by size and, and appearance and so on. And also as an actor. So I thought, well, let's find out what happens. And so over a period of the couple of years, I dropped about 60 pounds of muscle. Um, and, then, and then, you know, accessed a different array of roles. But interestingly, not a lot more roles and certainly no more guaranteed roles. The guaranteed roles were gone. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen, neither one of you would have seen, but like my company, we're, we're, I think we're all incorporated here, but my company is called Thug One Inc., 
Uh, it's just a joke. It's a tongue-in-cheek reference to the number of times I've played Thug Number One on my contract. Right? <laughs> oh, buddy. Right? Same. Right? That's right? brilliant. So, that, you know, I had I had long hair and I was huge, you know, and I was Asian-looking or whatever. So yeah. I'm like, yeah, Thug One Inc. So, 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 but once I cut my hair and That's once good. I dropped sixty pounds of weight, it's like, yes, I could be a cop now. I could be, you know, I could be, you know, what a, a soldier. I could anything. be a number of things. It could be anything. And I did get those roles. But they were no longer guaranteed to me. And in fact, I think I started getting less work in front of the camera uh, than I did prior uh, when I was much larger and much more of a character. Ah. Yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. The Al Leong of Toronto. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, which leads me to a comment that I made prior to, to rolling, which I said, to, I said to Randy, you know, it's like I really... It was a struggle to make a living. Uh, I mean, I trained all the time. As a bodybuilder, I trained all the time. I lived in the gym and I, I, I did less martial arts. Uh, when I dropped the bodybuilding, I went back to my first love, which was martial arts and, you know, training three times a day, some days, <clears throat> multiple days a week. So I was always prepared, but I, I really wasn't getting hired. And it wasn't until I moved to the other side of the camera uh, first as a, a stunt rigger, then as a fight coordinator, then as a assistant and then stunt coordinator. Then I really found, uh, I guess, success or, or, or the ability to make steady work. And I think that what that illustrates to me and the rest of the world is that I clearly have a face for behind the camera. <laughs> I don't know about that, but yeah, yeah I, get <laughs> it. I get it. <laughs> it's, it's a good joke to play with, but yeah, there, I don't, there's. I don't there, believe it either. Okay, well, there's. There, there, anyways, there's much more for me to do now behind the camera, and I'm, I'm honestly thrilled about it. I'm very happy about it, and very happy to be doing what I'm currently doing. Well, you certainly have um, um, a measure of success behind the camera lately. Yes. Um, are you the only stunt coordinator out of Toronto that was nominated for an Emmy? I don't know. Tell me about that. What was the experience like going to LA for that? Oh, it was fun. You know, um, it's, uh, it's a very posh affair. It was, uh, you know, uh, we were taken care of by the wonderful people at FX. Uh, they got us down there, put us up. And then it is actually what, my, 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 sorry. What was the show? Uh, the show is What We Do in the Shadows. Okay. Um, Best. It's so good. Oh, my God, man. Oh, anyway, okay. oh, I'm just, a, yeah. I'm a fan of the whole, the movie and the show. It's so good. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that Emmy nomination was for Best Stunt Coordination, but uh, of course, I also direct on the show. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I'm going to take a couple shots at seeing if I can, if I can head back down there again. But, but going there was very much that Hollywood experience that, you know, you see, that you watch on TV, going down there and then going to the event and the awards and then going to the red carpet and all that stuff and then the gala afterwards. So it was it was pretty nice, and it was a very—I have to say—a very posh gala. A lot of a lot of beautiful people. It wasn't. We we by the way, it's not the. Uh, I, sh I shouldn't say the Emmys proper, but it's not the Emmys for the performers. It was the Emmys for the, um, the technicians, technical, technical mm -hmm. Emmys. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, so okay. it's it's all like the camera people and the makeup people and whatever. So we we had our Emmys, uh, both the awards and the the gala event on a separate night. Mm -hmm. In fact, the, the weekend before um the emmys proper okay but it was still nonetheless still uh, an emmy still an emmy nomination and still um 
very posh and very lovely. They they definitely did not uh, spare anything uh, to take care of us and you know also show us uh, you know recognition. Wonderful. Well, without a doubt, you're an incredibly crucial part of the uh, development of the series. So ah, well, Don't I've been there. I've been there Come since on. I've been there since the beginning. I've been there since season one. We uh, we 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 just completed season five. So I've been creating the action. Uh, along with the very lovely and talented uh, J.F. LaChapelle uh, for the show since season one. And then uh, starting in season three, I started second unit directing for them and then suddenly, surprise, surprise, directing for them. Uh, so now I've, I've directed four episodes over three seasons. Nice. That's excellent. Are they coming back for six? We are coming back for six. I don't know. Uh, Did Andrew and I mention we were available? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm having you out. <laughs> having you out. <clears throat> um, yeah, we're coming back for one more. I, your guess would be as good as mine if it is our final season or not. Mm -hmm. I hope not. Uh, we're definitely coming back for one more in the fall. Good for you. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Good for the show. Incredible. Yeah. Such a good show. What else are you going to do? When uh, Do you have aspirations of film? I. That's interesting. Is it aspiration? No, to do film now. It's so fascinating how the small screen has caught up to, the, to the big screen, isn't yeah. it? I don't think it's even caught right? up. It's just overtaken. Yeah, overtaken or on the same level, well, look yeah, at perhaps we could the say. The movie stars now that are t doing television and yeah. long form, 10, 10 episodes. It's well, technology like a 10-hour movie. You know, right? it's really come a long it's way. incredible. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Look at that. There was a time when, when you know... Um, Television was kind of like the the little little brother or whatever little sibling to to film, yeah. And and people only ever aspired to maybe leave film or TV rather to go to film. And mm -hmm. Usually they couldn't. Some notables are uh, like Bruce Willis, who came out of Moonlighting and then mm -hmm. became an action star in the '90s, and and Tom Hanks, of course, who came out of a Booze silly little buddies. comedy called Boys and Buddies, and you know, who Clooney. knew he was. Yeah, George Clooney. Yeah, yeah. so so it you know they started that sort of transition of leaving television to go to Hollywood, and then now there's that reverse trend, where film became a difficult place to be because it shrank. Really, the the middle part of film, mid-sized movies, disappeared, and they were left with only like summer blockbusters. You know, so unless you are an A-lister and in demand at that time, you know, there, there, there's only that and either that or there was just like small independent art films. There was almost nothing. There was a vacuum in the middle. And meanwhile, TV was blowing up and, you know, being on serialized TV, it was a steady pay, steady job. So you saw all these actors kind of retreating and coming into television. And then, of course, as we know, you know, through through um, streaming services and television, television kept growing, and now it is on par with, with feature film. Like with, I think Game of Thrones really redefined that with their special effects and mm, with their long form storytelling, and that is now what we are used to as a society. So they're kind of interchangeable in some ways, you know, and and uh, you have to decide where you want to be. Would I like to do film? Uh, coming back to that, uh, yes, I would like to do film. Uh, there, there's been some offers uh, last year that unfortunately uh, didn't pan out. The, the films uh, got shelved for the time being, and and so on. But I am I am talking to people. I am working some stuff behind the scenes, so I can't say anything about that. Come on! But I do have <laughs> I, I do hope to uh, you know have some other stuff to talk about. Mm. 
That's great. Soon. You know, in, I mean, in in regards to that, you must want to direct another episode of another show, or I absolutely do. Um, very shortly, uh, we'll be looking into that and shopping me around to some other shows. Uh, and Stella. again, I can't say anything about that either. But come on, I, I, of, of course, of, <laughs> of course, I want to do that. This is yeah, this is where I'm happiest. It uh, directing is perfect for all my developmental differences well it's it's the like one of the things they say about to try to describe what directing is like uh and i don't know who 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 made this quote at first they said directing is like death by a thousand questions so you know you as a director you're going to get a script you're going to break it down you're going to read each scene you're going to try to understand thematically what each scene is you're going to understand thematically what uh, the entire project is whether it be a, an episode of a tv series or whether it be a movie you know and then you begin to break down shot lists and so on but then of course you start having your meetings and then it's you know what color is the couch how do you want the drapes to be what do you there's so many questions and then that's all your prep, you know, your scouting and everything else, where, where you're not going to look so that we can, you know, put the trucks there and all this shit that you never thought about when you're doing stunts or when you're acting. Well, and as that, a stunt coordinator, you bring 25 questions to the floor every day. There you go. But so does the DP. Oh, yeah. Art direction, wardrobe, any, every department exactly. is coming with 25 questions. Exactly. So it's... It's an, it's it's intense the the prep portion of it and as we know I mean the harder you prep uh, the more sweat lost in practice the less blood in battle the more you prep you know 100%. yeah the more you work in your prep the easier your shoot your shoot hopefully will be fun you know that's what you hope that's, that's what that's, you hope to do that's the time for play but even then even then when you are shooting everything that you have done to prep as a director uh, you know, which is, of course, an intimate understanding and an in-depth understanding of reading the script a million times. Uh, but your shot list and your blocking and everything else that you have come with to the table to the day that you shoot, you do have to be prepared to let that go, depending on what you see. Uh, there is a saying, and I will paraphrase, that uh, it's n not the great actor uh, that speaks well but perhaps a great actor that listens well. Uh, Guillermo del Toro said in an interview, uh, same could be said for a director. You should be listening to the scene as it's unfolding. You should be listening to your directors and ready to react to that and to go with that. So you do, you do have to have this plasticity sure. and, and this sense of play and this flexibility. And the flexibility only comes from um, your knowledge base to have the confidence to be flexible. So, so, so right now, uh, I just finished uh, a couple of books, one by Dan Atias. I don't know if you've worked with Dan. Uh, he's a director. I met him on The Boys. Uh, uh, he, he has a book uh, about directing television. And then I also finished another book by Patrick Tucker, also about directing. Currently, I am reading... Akira Kurosawa's autobiography, hmm. uh, as well as Quentin Tarantino's Cinema Speculation, his <clears> new book. Wow. While I am listening to Robert McKee's uh, story. very respective tome on uh, called Story. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's like the Bible of screenwriting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, and 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 well, we all should because 
Yeah, I don't think it matters if you're a, either a stunt coordinator trying to tell stories uh, through what I say is nonverbal dialogue, trying to tell stories through action, or whether you are uh, an actor trying to understand what the director is trying to achieve and certainly what you are trying to do as a director. So it's not just for screenwriters, uh, clearly. So you're, you're wise to read it 10 times and maybe another 10 times. I certainly will. Big time. So I'm listening to that on audiobook while taking a master class from Ron Howard uh, about <laughs> film directing. So I'm just kind of, again, it speaks to all my letters, uh, you know, uh, just, just, just my ADHD, kind of me jumping all over the place, but also my extreme focus on uh, trying to gather as much of that information so that I am prepared to listen uh, on the day to the scene, to the actors, and to change uh, for the betterment of what we're trying to get on camera. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And, and so it's like problem, problem, problem solved. Uh, serotonin, oxytocin, problem, <laughs> problem solved. So it's adrenaline. And then uh, serotonin, oxytocin. So I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just like hitting my crack pipe uh, multiple times a day, my huh. metaphorical crack pipe. And I tell you, I just can't get enough of it. It is more addictive than any other totally. um, job that I have had so far in the field of uh, film and television. Well, good no you. doubt. Yeah. Great. No really doubt. is. Wow. Man, we could end there. That was great. <laughs> yeah, but, no. not, but we won't. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to a second. No, 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 okay, no, no. get out. No. Okay. No. What what is hold on a second. What is that? Oh. Yeah, I hear a sound. Yeah. I I know exactly what it is. Well, we know there's a wife upstairs. <clears throat> ah. <laughs> right. Still, I've never heard that sound. It's all good. Sorry, Tim. Talk all amongst good? yourselves. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're we're sending a text to the upstairs <laughs> office. That's hilarious. Oh, my God. Uh, so, so we got awkward there for a second. Yeah, that's okay. That's <laughs> all right. Do you want any more in your glass? I'll tell. Oh, yeah, sure. You can top yeah, me it's up. Pretty, it's pretty good, eh? It's good. What is that? Is that Appleton? This is Dalmore. No. no yeah, no. It looks like an Appleton bottle. It does. It does. It does. It does. But it's yeah. not rum, of course. Dalmore. That, that was, that was ridiculous. Dark. Shout out to Dalmore's if they want to sponsor the podcast. Yes. <laughs> I hope um, so. I hope they're watching. No, we're celebrating. This is our 25th show. Yeah, thanks so much, Tig, for being here for this 25th. No, it's been fascinating. Unbelievable. I, I want to I want to talk for a minute about Quentin Tarantino. Please. Uh-oh. Yeah. Quentin. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. So, so um, in, in, this, in this sort of latest you know, thing that I'm doing, directing, as I say, it, it is wonderful. It is thrilling. It is so exciting. Um, and yet I feel that I must work so hard uh, to catch up to deserve the seat. You know, uh, and I'm I am I am humbled and appreciative uh, of my my um, showrunner, yeah, and the producers and the and the people at FX to to allow me the opportunity to to actually you know direct on a on a hit comedy series. It's not a small thing, and uh, as I move forward and do more, you know, I want to again I want to deserve the seat, uh, and it's interesting because I unlike other directors and I'm envious of them to a degree um, because so many of them seem to have had this wish and this interest like since childhood. Uh, I, I, I'm reading Tarantino's book 
uh, cinema speculation. And he's a perfect example of that. Like he, it's a little bit autobiographical in the first couple of, uh, uh, chapters. I don't know if it changes from that. I'll let you know. Um, and he talks about being seven or eight years old, you know, it's in the seventies and, and his, his mom and his uh, then father-in-law when he was still there until he left, um, they're taking him to see all these, you know, adult really themed films, but they're like, well, rather than get a babysitter, we'll just take you just, just, just shut up and, you know, don't bother us while we're watching the movie. So he said, I, I had this, the, the, I got to see all this stuff that other kids in school, they thought I was a cool kid because they never got to see these movies because there's violence or sex, you know, there's all this stuff in 70s film. All the the good stuff. All the good stuff. And he goes, and I I got to watch all that. And and then he goes on to wax eloquent about, you know, uh, performances of all these different actors that I've never even heard of, but, but, you know, but then Steve McQueen and people like that. I don't know how much of that he recalled from, that age or if he looked these things up and kind of paired it with his impressions at that age it's hard to tell but i do know that you know even years ago like i guess he used to work at a video shop mm-hmm. in 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 uh, hollywood and and he was a <coughs> he was a film savant yeah like he just encyclopedic knowledge of film and filmmaking uh, so you know <clears throat> excuse me is it shocking that, you know, he is the Artur that he is? And, you know, the answer is no. I mean, the guy has literally been fascinated since like seven years Absolutely. of age, right? Mm. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and many other directors, you know, uh, same thing, like Spielberg and the people, people who just are like picked up a, a Super 8 camera yeah. when they were 10 and just kept filming and just never stopped. And now it's been like five decades later or whatever. And it's like... That's what I'm looking at when I look at people who I respect and admire as directors. I'm like, shit, man. Yeah. I haven't been thinking about it that long. I was, I was. You just came in through a different door. I did come in through a different door and there was much to be learned in some ways, certainly in filmic action, uh, you know, as, as, as you gentlemen know, you know, you know it from the ground up, you know it from literally hitting the ground up. Mm-hmm. in terms of the performance of that, the blocking of that, the design of that, I'm going upwards, um, to to the capture of that, mm-hmm. right? So you guys, you guys know that stuff and I know that stuff. And then we continue with maybe you're directing that. I know you've done a bit of that too. So you, 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 you have a very intimate understanding of at least this portion of the filmmaking, but there is a lot left in terms of dealing with the overall story and the overall aesthetic of a film, working with your art department um, heads and working with your lead actors and so on. So there's a lot to catch up on that we don't deal with in stunts, right? So we, yeah, we have, a, we have an extensive education, I would agree. We also have a huge area that we have no experience in. Now, the thing is, though, sure, yeah. is, uh, you know, your humble attitude is the reason that Quentin Tarantino or anyone like him became him by understanding that there are, there is so much to learn and I don't want to be the guy uh, that isn't doing it or isn't doing it rightfully. Is, is that sort of what you're yeah, sort I, of I, thinking? I, I owe it going back to the death by a thousand questions. I owe it to the people who ask me the questions to have the answers. I do. I, I believe that. That's my that's my job. That's at least one of my jobs. But I need I need to have the I need to have the answers, and I need to have them then. 
now having said that, you can't ignore a fascination with something. You can't ignore loving something, no. even if you don't have the answers yet. Yeah. You can't yeah. ignore that feeling of wanting to do this. So it's just in anybody to just pick up the the tool and, and try. Hey, listen, it's impossible to to know everything. And, and when I was, you know, um, uh, listening to uh, several different directors talk about doing sort of styles of, of movies that they had never done before, uh, you know, uh, East Side Story, Spielberg, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. And he talked about how nervous he was to to do a musical because he had never done a musical before. And it's like Steven Spielberg, nervous. <laughs> yeah. <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You know what I mean? And I say to that, and I, you know, it it, it really makes me appreciate him, and it really makes me appreciate the art as well. But. And I have said this before about anything to do with art, but if your heart is not in your mouth, you're not making art. So if you're not terrified, it probably doesn't mean that much anyways to you. Totally makes you know? sense. So it's, it is okay if I maybe don't have all the answers and it's okay if you know, I'm a bit nervous about anything that, about something that I haven't done before and encountered before. It is an opportunity to learn. It's an opportunity to, to adapt. And it's an opportunity to lean on the people around you who are all incredibly talented and dedicated individuals as well. And you can't be afraid to do that because it takes a village, literally the village, to make a movie, right? 100%. So, so yeah, you can't, you can't, you, you, you shouldn't try to be an island either. And I, I wasn't implying that. I just do feel that I owe people as the captain of the ship to know that, for them to know that I am firmly holding that that uh, you know steering wheel and that I am steering the ship, um, that's all. So that's why my deep dive into all things film and becoming the film nerd that I never was. I was a martial arts nerd or I was a biology nerd. You are a nerd, you know, that's for sure. <laughs> I am absolutely a nerd. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, but Tarantino's like singular interest in film and storytelling really, really has stood out to me. I. I liked some of his films and didn't like the other ones so much like in the past in the past and ever since i've sort of started on the path that i'm on my respect for him in terms of like what he's been able to achieve and the nuances of what he's done he is a, a master of suspense if you think about the scenes uh that he did uh, with Christoph Waltz oh, in Inglorious Bastards in the farmhouse. In the farmhouse. Like it's the, the way that, and it's Christoph too, but the way that he's like asking permission and asking for milk and all these things and then speaking different, like, may I speak in, you know, English, may I speak? In, it was just masterful how that was written to just keep you on the edge. And meanwhile, that the Jewish family is underneath the floorboards. It was just insane. Like, you just, I don't know of any other examples in film that have that kind of suspense that's happening you know and so i have such an appreciation for him and it's like okay so i have a lot to learn about how this is done right and i do want to learn because i am fascinated well, it's a good scene to study yeah it's a fantastic and hitchcock scene. did the similar thing true hitchcock he would, he would also show you the bomb under the, the table scene master oh well, yeah, he would okay. show the two people talking but then he goes like this and he mm. shows you the bomb under the table Right. right. Usually early on, and that is one of the devices that he used and that Tarantino also used, which is called the promise. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of a scene or the setup, he's going to tell you that something terrible is going to happen or could happen. 
And then he leaves that. He just leaves that there. And then he goes into sometimes, as Tarantino often does, just inane conversation, just a whole bunch of talking and chit chat. You know, uh, you know, in 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 Pulp Fiction, you've got you know, um, uh, Travolta and Jackson sitting at a table talking about burgers and what have you. It's just silliness, <laughs> but you know something is going to happen. You know something terrible is probably going to happen, and that's that's sort of the that's how he does it. Though it's it the, anyways. It's called the promise, and it's very interesting because you just set that up, you leave it alone, do all this other stuff, but the audience cannot forget. What you started with. He, he is and the king waiting. of uh, he's the king of foreshadowing, man. Yeah, and like proper exposition. Uh, yeah, he he's he's so good at it. It's freaky. Yeah. So now you know it's like as I go into this path, it's like I sort of I wish I had that level of interest specifically, you know, in the craft of the story and filmmaking versus like say maybe doing the action in the film. But this is what I'm currently working on. This is why I read and study and yeah. you know do so much behind that. So it's it's uh, it's in respect for what these other directors have been able to do and how long they've been doing it. You know, yeah. totally, man. Now you don't you don't do you feel you might get stuck in uh, TV hell? Well, first of all, like we said, it, you know, it's not hell. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. One well, of the... I mean that that that, that you're going to go from show to show to show to show. Ah. You're gonna make your rounds as a as a Canadian TV director. Well, this, so yeah, you 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 did point something out, which is interesting because I have thought about that. I, I when I started uh, getting to know directors a bit more, working as a stunt coordinator, and they start to intimate their lives to you, uh, and they're like, yeah, you know, I haven't seen uh, my house in six months because I've just gone from this show in New York to over here to Vancouver, and now I'm here in Toronto, and you're like. Ooh, that's rough. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to get ahead of myself. I, I don't know. Yeah, being a um, being a, a, a serial series director, it's a tough life. It's like a traveling salesperson. You just live out of your suitcase and you go from town to town and you're always a guest in someone else's you know show, mm-hmm. learning everybody's names and whatever. It's like um, I I don't know. I don't know. I don't I don't I don't want to limit myself by saying I do or don't want to do something I I just want to do and we'll see where it takes me yeah it's great um I hope to do some films which allow me a longer uh, prep period uh that will allow me to sort of flex some different creative muscles and and see how that feels versus the the always in, in you know intense rush of preparing for uh uh, for a television series, as as you know, as a coordinator, it's like there's never enough time to get it fully, fully prepared. You just do the best you can. You hope that you've got it all, and you're, you know, as as we know, we're all shooting while the paint's drying on the set, so everybody else is experiencing cool. the same thing too. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard. It would be interesting to to see to experience it on the on the film director level. Now the um. <clears throat> Oh my God, what was I just going to say? Oh, I was going to say, when when is the last time that you actually watched a film, a movie? Well, in <laughs> fact... Because uh, for it? me, it's been for fucking ever. God. No, 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 no. And it, that's my because other... He's, because he's so engrossed in television. Yeah, uh, oh. yeah. It's, yeah, it's the TV he, he thing. Writes, yeah. He writes television. He's created oh, okay. series. Yeah. So I do watch the long form. I, I am doing that. But lately, I've I have felt... 
that I have not watched enough film, That's especially lately, because yeah. we get caught up. The TV is so good. It's so good and it's so attractive and, and, and it's so easy to get caught up in it. Um, but no, I, uh, I watched, um, I watched uh, Jordan Peele's Nope. Okay, yeah. Uh, very recently. And then I, after seeing that, which I had mixed feelings about, I went, went and watched Agreed. Us which i have a lot of problems with us which one's that oh that's the one with the people underground uh they were underground yes uh, but right? the, but like the matching family that yes shows the matching up. family it's like it's, oh, a, it's I... like a black american family and then there's a matching family that shows up that one on all the suspense I stand it. and then okay um <laughs> and then i went back and i watched get out which i still love get out is a masterpiece us yeah. there are too many plot holes in us to make me happy i'm afraid i've I'm I've, I've read reviews about it and they say yeah but it's a you know it's like a commentary on america and it's all that i'm like okay oh, great God. i'm glad you guys found that but for me mm-hmm. i don't know i feel like you're reading into it too deeply i think it was written maybe hastily or something because it just seems to be so many things that don't make sense to me in terms of logic nope very interesting. Uh, I don't want to give it away. I don't want to give any um, spoilers for anybody who hasn't watched it yet because it's a fairly new film. Um, you, If you don't know anything about it, it will take you in a direction that you did not expect. And it has one of the most interesting creature effects hmm. that I've ever seen. It's very hard to do creatures now. We've seen them all. They're all based on like insects or they're based on reptiles or they're based on something we've seen them all yeah i've seen some stuff on nope and uh it does look it's very fascinating it is interesting it's very interesting i also watched um um i also watched woman king oh yeah uh with viola davis as Mm -hmm. the lead i love her uh i am she must she should be so proud of herself uh you can clearly tell when she's doing the action that it, it is is her Great. Uh, she's not an action star by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think she probably has any martial arts or fighting background. And, and you know, watching her, like, do that fight action and everything, you know, with, with a great amount of conviction, I was very impressed by that. Um, she's I, incredible. My critique of that film, I thought, I warmed up to it. it there, there was a scene that it opens with, with Viola. It's opening shot of her and some of the other uh, warriors and then they attack uh, uh, another tribe. And they got into a very stylistic fight. And for a moment, I was, I, I, it, it took me out of the movie mm. because the fighting was, I understand why the urge to do it because film fighting has elevated to such a level now, you know, and we're so used to watching all these superhero films and all the fight action that happens there, but they don't belong in this historic piece. And so when I see some of those moves, it takes me out of the movie. And there was some of that. So uh, again, I don't want to spoil that one for anybody, but that was that was that mm. kind of made it hard for me to get into the film. And then as the film progressed and we got introduced to the characters and the further explanation of them and the storyline, uh, I got back into the movie. And 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 I'm happy to say that the rest of the action was more brutal more realistic, more what you want to see for the characters later on. So they had this slick fight piece in the beginning. That was the only thing that was jarring to me. Hmm. Now that could be as easy as just a department hiccup like this, you know, whatever. It could be the stunt. Could could be. I don't know. You know. Yeah. 
Yeah, it could um, be a great script, and then and through the making uh, a movie process, that's the one silly thing that just. Well, it was the stressed. opening scene, and I think they really wanted to hook the audience with something like awesome. Okay. Uh, and I would have gone for as much as the rating would allow, like if it was a rated um, R, let's say, or whatever. Uh, I, I would have gone for more brutality. To give you that visceral sense, then the slick, then the fancy, then the, then the fancy stuff, yeah, yeah. right? Because I just it, it's, okay, so that you know that that didn't work for me. I also watched Bullet Train, right <laughs> after on the way back from Japan. That because was fun. I, I, that was that was a fun romp of action. Yeah, uh, you know, David Leach is uh, he's he's very much uh, in control <clears throat> of of shooting action and and camera movement and camera work. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the DOP's name on that, um, but the lighting was beautiful. I, I love that style of lighting. It was a, it was a gorgeous film, um, mm. you know. But but as as their films, it's sort of the eighty seven eleven production films. It's like it's you know not so much plot heavy. It's a little more action heavy. I think it's meant to be fun, and we should take it that way. Oh, that movie was um, completely meant to be fun, right? And you know, and so it's it that that was fun. That was a fun romp. I haven't seen uh, that one yet. Yeah, the most recent one that I saw was Puss in Boots. I have not seen Puss in Boots yet. It's uh, pretty good. Uh, a friend of mine <laughs> and a lead actor uh, on uh, on uh, on what we do in the shadows, Harvey Guillen. Uh Hey, Harvey. Uh, he voices one of the characters on it, so oh, I, no I, I, I do owe it to uh, watch that as soon as I as soon as I can. I saw it with my niece, and she loved it. So and she's five. Right. <laughs> Very movie sophisticated. <laughs> well, you know that's the thing about. Um, uh, animated films nowadays is that they realize that there are parents taking their kids or getting the DVDs for their totally. and they put something in for everybody. They always do. Yeah. Always yeah. Do. There's always different levels of humor and nuance. And there's jokes for you and there's, you know, jokes jokes for your kids. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah usually, yeah. right? So that's the that's one of the beautiful things I think about the writing of uh of modern uh, uh animation films. Absolutely. Uh, and currently I'm watching Babylon uh, it's a very long film. It's three hours long. Uh, I think the director's name... Is it name, recent? A recent? Yeah, Babylon? it's a 2022 film. I think it's up for some Academy Awards as well as it Babylon. should be. Yeah, it's yeah, uh, the, uh, directed by... Uh, oh, I had it here. I can't remember. Well, you're watching it? Like yeah. you spread this film out over a few days, or well, it's a it's a three hour <laughs> film. Uh, oh, I see. Wow. You, you know, uh, I will watch it. I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through. I'll watch yeah. the other half. And this is a film. And typically, if, I, if this is a movie that I like, I will watch it several times for different reasons and, mm -hmm. br and break course. it down in different exactly. ways. Exactly. Oh yeah, of course um, we do. That's the best part about a good movie. I also watched um, um, Wakanda Forever, Black Panther. Okay, uh, and that was interesting to me because it had all the things you expect from a Marvel film. Uh, had uh, gorgeous uh, filming, uh, had uh, very impressive uh, action pieces, and um, I did not like it. Uh, so that was unfortunate. Sounds like every Marvel movie. I well, well, <laughs> sorry. I think that. You know, so I'm, Marvel's not going to sponsor the podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm obviously a sociopath uh, because what happened was in the first movie, you are cheering for, uh, you know, the Wakandans, right? They are like an elevated 
uh, society that has chosen not to engage with the rest of the world on one hand, which, you know, is whatever, is hoarding a bit, I suppose, but but they are nevertheless benevolent, I suppose, hmm. right? And, you know, and, and Chadwick Boseman, right? I mean, come on. Yeah, no, sure. kidding. Right? But then the next one, you know, he's not there. There's quite a lot of homage to him, which I thought was a beautiful thing, I do have to say. I can imagine. Um, and it was referenced, like, multiple times, like, from the beginning, in the middle, and in the end, just so many nods to to Chadwick. It was a, it was a beautiful thing. But my problem was is that, you know, we were rooting for the Wakandans uh, in the first film, and in the second film, uh, I found myself rooting for Namor, who I guess was the antagonist in the film. He was kind of a complicated villain, if you will. Um, I, again, I don't want to spoil it it's for anybody who wants to go watch it. So, hmm. but but that's that like it was my heartfelt reaction to it. I'm like, I wanted Namor to win, which is really weird because <clears throat> you should want the Wakandans to win. Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you that watch it? Unfortunate. No. And to be honest with you, as soon as it says Marvel on the screen, I tend to avoid. Oh, do you? And yeah. As oh. do I. Oh, you do? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Give me when Harry yeah. met Sally. No, well, I mean, no. you know, you guys do action, so we do action. They but are they are studies in action, and in capturing action, especially sure. like camera moves. Like like they they do, they do some interesting camera stuff, and it's good to know that when you're building your action. In case like in television, because we're starting to do camera moves like mm -hmm. that, you know, you need to know how to design your action that will work for camera moves like that. That's the only thing, right? So I. But think then, but then there's beautiful movies like Kick Ass. Yes. I fucking love that movie. It's Kick like Kickass it was fantastic. Yeah, it might as well be a comic book movie or something, but it's not and it's it's just a, it's a completely original idea and it's so well executed. Camera, fight, you name it, you know? Uh, that's I, I, that to me is I where agree. it's at. So you you like the more visceral organic feel? I and gather. Color me old fashioned, but I like a good story. And and not over slick, I guess, in the uh Yeah in the capture know. of it. There's something to be said for that because there is a we do know that there is a <clears throat> there is a look of um both the Marvel films and certainly the, you know, now eighty seven eleven films, because you have uh, John Wick and you have Atomic Blonde and you have Sure. Uh and now you have Bullet uh Bullet Train. And there is a recognizable style you know, yes. like it or not, there's a recognizable style that has become a very dominant style. Yes. When we first saw it, I think we were very blown away by it and very enamored by it. But now it it is also self-referential if you keep repeating that pattern. It's overexposed. Massively. Yeah. Uh, and I think the only antidote for that is returning to something a little bit more organic and gritty looking. I think that's the only way. You just can't... You 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 can't keep going in this direction indefinitely because it becomes almost predictable. You it know. already is. Right. So you, well, okay. You know what? And I won't argue with you there, right? I don't, I don't want to be the one to say that, but you said it. Um, uh, <laughs> you, you, when the action scene happens, that's when you want the audience to be on the edge of their seat waiting to see what happens next. You don't want that to be the time that they get up to go get a snack because they know how the action scene is going to unfold, you know? And if you are too self-referential, if you keep creating action in this way, that begins to happen. 
I what, saw. What are it they going to miss? Yeah, what are yeah. they going to miss? Right, you know, it's going to be some oddly acrobatic moves to kind of get to the same place in the room to exchange some more punches and kicks. You're like, what? But why did you need to go off the wall, off the ceiling, and around you know the pool table to there do this one punch over here and then go back out there again? <laughs> except to fill the frame except to create movement you know you're like it's not motivated it's not motivated that is a big deal you know i i always i always think like uh if i'm gonna go to the theater and spend uh 20 bucks on a movie i could spend 20 bucks on something like shawshank or 20 bucks on something like you know iron man 4 and and it's and you kind of go yeah where the products it's a great um, movie um, but you know I, I which when I when I, in, at least in my opinion or in my experience um, when a when a movie is emotionally driving you whether it's laughing or crying or it's uh, or you're sitting on the edge of your seat um, if you come out of a movie going Jesus man I, I wish it never ended I feel like I was just on a roller coaster you know all this kind of stuff. And you almost like emptied a part of yourself. Uh, that to me is like what, you know, that's the time. Uh, that, that, that's time you're setting aside in that one life you live. And I don't want to set it aside for marble. <laughs> well, well, you ended it, it pretty bluntly. It, but Here's an interesting <laughs> one because there are critiques about the, um, you know, green grass style of um, cinematography. But that whole, I didn't want the movie to end. Uh, that has happened to me on uh, the Greengrass, the, uh, the, the Bourne series, mm. especially the first one. Beautiful that, stuff. That movie, I, I think I was going through some challenges in my personal life at that time. And I just kind of like dove into the Jason Bourne character and sort of almost identified with him. As like, I want to get into your really tough life. Um, and then just was with him in that journey of sort of trying to find out who he was and the discovery. Cause that's really, it's really a story about self-discovery with an action backdrop. hundred percent. Right. That's exactly what that, that's was. what it, that's what matters. And this is the things you think about as a director. That's the beauty. <clears throat> yeah. Excuse me. Is that you, you need to treat it that way. You're like, this is a movie about self-discovery Yeah. and we're going to put in this stuff. We're also going to put in some shaky cam, which some people <laughs> really, really hate. That's hilarious. And some people didn't mind, totally. right? Yeah. I did not mind it because uh, that film was one of the first films to successfully introduce uh, Filipino martial arts to the world. Yeah. Because oh, was, really? Absolutely. He was, um, uh, he, he was doing uh, Kali FMA mixed with some, a uh, little bit of Krav for the gun stripping stuff because yeah. okay. uh, Krav is very dedicated to taking yeah. guns out of people's hands uh and then some muay thai as well uh for the kicking stuff because crab doesn't really have that as much and neither does uh kali fma so those three styles mixed with the shaky cam is the look of the fight construction of the born series oh interesting. completely yeah okay i know all this um uh, because i was asked to make uh fights of that look uh for nikita it was literally sort of one of my first assignments really is the kind of like, can you do this stuff? And I'm like, yes, I can do this stuff. This is actually my specialty. This is my martial art, my mm -hmm. two martial arts. In fact, mm -hmm. two out of my three, sorry, two out of the three martial arts are my actual specialty with like 20 years experience. So I was able to 
to, to bring that and, and build some of that in more stylized than that, because again, different show, different look, uh, different body types for Maggie Q. Um, but yeah, that's, so that's my, that there's my breakdown of the, the style of the, the fight work and the camera work, but, mm. but the story to go back to what you were saying about, I didn't want the story to end. I mean, the movie got to the end and we, they roll credits. I'm like, Oh, is it over? I, I want to sit here for another two hours. I don't want to go back to my life. If you can do that as a filmmaker, you've really achieved something. If you you, you, yeah. you just want your audience to say, please, can you not stop? That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing achievement. And it's going to be different at, you know, at all times. And um, uh, Fincher was like that for me too. Um, not in Seven, because you're like, can you please make this hurting stop? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's um, true. No, and a wonderful ending too, and and an ending that the 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 producers didn't want to go with, but that he insisted on and that he got, and and I'm glad that he got what he wanted because mm -hmm. you, you needed that. That ending is iconic now. You know, they thought it was too much, um, but uh, no, uh, in like the uh, girl with the dragon tattoo, and so those, good. yeah, like you didn't want those to end because you just went into that world and it was so interesting you didn't want to come back out of it um so those those movies like really stand out to me there isn't um, a moment in that movie where you can go three hours in that movie and there's not a moment that doesn't have purpose yes yes yeah and that's that's screenwriting and directing because you need to when when you're a screenwriter and you've written all these scenes you need to go back through it and just ruthlessly go does this carry the story forward because if right. it doesn't you need to get rid of it it doesn't mm -hmm. matter how much you like it or it's, if it's pretty and the same with like directing if if you even shot it which you probably shouldn't have but <laughs> if you did shoot it you know understand for the editors they're like but does this carry the story forward is there a reason for it to be here because uh, it's going on the floor you know um, and that's why jumping off the wall and then off the pool table, doing a backflip and then a punch doesn't <laughs> go with me because the purpose, there's no right. purpose. Yeah, yeah, that's the... Time well wasted. Exactly, exactly. So you know, we're all probably in violent agreement there in terms of like action design. <laughs> you know, and, I, and, I, and I, I never tried to be old-fashioned. Like I, I, I look to the roots of things to understand where they are and then I look to the future and kind of go, what can we do to expand on that? So I'm not one to uh, turn my nose up at something, you know, sure, that's innovative. Sure. It's just that it was innovative, and now it's and now it's self-referential. Mm -hmm. yes, it just keeps yes. happening. So how are we going to how how are we going to get out of that? You know, is the question. That's what I'm curious about. I'm curious to see. Yeah, I think generally, hmm. generally people like to they, they use the wheel because the wheel's there. Sure. And uh, and and that like to me that seems like a general thing among population in any industry of any sort yeah and then it takes uh it takes a unique individual or someone with a unique mind to break that cycle and maybe take that and add their own thing and take out the nonsense and well of, you know you some know. yeah someone's going to do something innovative or someone is going to reinvent the wheel uh, to a certain extent, mm -hmm. and then everyone's going to copy that and do that for the next ten years because that's that's kind of what we do. That's what happens, though. You know, yeah. somebody comes out with a special voice, mm -hmm. and everybody copies it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> it's just just natural. Like, like Randy's voice. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Everybody <laughs> wants this voice. <laughs>
I've been this is why I don't while. do radio. <laughs> uh, right? You got a good voice for radio, I think. Um, what else are you passionate about? What else am I passionate about? We spoke earlier about passions. And Hey, listen, we talked about shoes. Can you talk about the shoes that you wore to the Emmys? My they, God, you must have been the tallest person there. Uh, I was not the tallest person there. <laughs> I was standing next to uh, the Kenny brothers. Who? Wait, who are the Kenny brothers? I don't know the Kenny brothers. Yeah, you do. They're Tony, Tony, Tony Kenny's uh, kids. I don't know. Oh, I don't I'm know. Not sure yeah, they're both like the the twin towers. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're both like they're both like six five. Uh, you know, with like, uh, I think, I think Hudson might've cut his hair now. Um, but they're both like six, five with like long blonde hair, like down on their backs. They look like a pair of Vikings. They look like two Chris Hemsworths. Um, <laughs> you don't know them really, wow. I don't think but I you guys know Tony though, of course, like, right? Tony Kenny? No, yeah. I don't. I don't know who that is. Oh, okay. Um, well anyways, uh, they are, well, uh, Tony. JR, JR Kenny is our, uh, is our special effects head, oh, head of geez. the special effects department on uh, what we do in the shadows. They also got a nomination, not for shadows, but for, I think for C. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they also attended. Uh, oh, I see. Okay. That's um, why they're there. They also attended the Emmys with me. And I, I, I had to, I'll, I'll find it for you later. I had to, I had to ask them both. To, I go, Hey, can you guys come in here for a second? I just want to take a picture of you. And they're like, Oh, okay. And I'm like, because this is the only time I'm ever going to be as tall as you. Cause every time I see them and I'm working with them, I'm always looking up at them like this. And it's kind of annoying. You, you, you know? send me that picture. I'm going to put it on the podcast. But I, I, I will, but my, my heels, uh, my, they're Rick Owens. Uh, he's the designer. And you said um, he's Canadian. No, Rick Owens oh, is sorry. not Canadian. Rick Owens is, I think, uh, from California, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Or he could be from the UK. Uh, but anyhow, uh, no, um, John Fluvog, excuse me, is Canadian. Right, right. Yes. Right, right. So, but I was wearing uh, Rick Owens. He has a platform boot, grilled, called it a grilled platform boot or grilled kiss boot it's really nice but it's a six inch heel so in those heels i am also six five that's wicked uh, yeah so I, <laughs> I i have this picture of me between the two brothers you know i'm like this is the only time this is the only time this is gonna happen well i think man, you know, everybody wants to see wild, this man. send it to me now yeah. but okay I, I will uh and i i have i have uh you know i bought my third pair a little while ago no uh, way yeah and, are you and, are you willing to talk about the cost of these things it's just so <laughs> gosh. Um, they're a lot. Uh, I bet they're a lot. They're, I bet, they're, man. They're, well, they're they're stunning. They're a four figure, yeah. Shoe, sure multiple four. Wow, shoe. really? Yeah, yeah. His stuff is, it's weird. It's, it's all very interesting. It's sort of future forward. Um, got a lot of drop crotch pants and stuff, you know, but the pants, then they'll be like 3000 bucks and you're like, it's 3000 bucks for a pair of pants, dude. So I don't have any of his pants, uh, <laughs> but Damn. I do have three pairs of his shoes and, uh, I'm, I'm going to have more, uh, things I'm passionate about. <laughs> I love that. Uh, things I'm passionate about is, uh, well, representation, uh in a number of different ways and today i'll talk about something a little bit darker um okay. uh, on my mind is brianna gray or sorry brianna gay right now g-h-e-y 16 year old trans girl uh that was uh, uh murdered 
in the UK uh, on February 11th by two 15-year-old kids. Uh, they have been arrested and charged with murder. Uh, they're trying to decide whether or not it's a hate crime, except that it is. Um, okay. I can you imagine. know, because Brianna talked about on social media being bullied at school um, often for being trans. And without knowing for sure, I'm quite sure that these kids didn't kill her for her lunch money. Of course not. Right? Jesus Christ. Uh, and the trans community is, you know, in mourning and, 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 and very upset about it. Uh, I do, I do fit underneath the trans umbrella in terms of my identity. Uh, so I'm also, uh, very much touched by this and, you know, the, this is a result. What happened to her is a result of, um, you know, anti-trans rhetoric that is being circulated so much now in right-wing media and in places like that. And it's so harmful. And I don't think people understand just how harmful it is until something like this happens. Because this thing that happens is a direct result in that in the UK, there is a very, very, there's a famous, very powerful um, and incredibly rich person who, um, under the argument of feminism, also argues against the uh, validity of trans identities. So, in my opinion, and I am unapologetic about this, you know, J.K. Rowling can stand up and take a bow now for having a hand in the murder of this 16-year-old trans girl because it is rhetoric that mm. she passes along that says that trans women are not real women and that their identities are invalid that cause trans women to be attacked either verbally or physically or in this case, murdered in a park. It's a direct result of that rhetoric. And to think that a person with that much money and that much power that that's the best they can do with themselves is shameful. So I don't mind saying this in this moment. So I'm sorry about that. That's a very dark moment. That's very heavy uh, on this podcast, but that is what's on my mind right now. Because no, hey, that I is, asked you what was on your mind. There you go. Yeah. So, um, okay. That is and, that is what's in the headlines, and that's what is on my mind. Yeah, and rightly so. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, Holy fuck! I'm just that's. It's horrible. Yes, I dropped a devastating bomb there. No, it is. You know the, I mean the honest the honest part on my end is I don't, I don't know enough about a lot of this stuff. I don't know enough about J.K. Rowling's opinion and all this. But um, well, her opinion, I, you know, her opinion, and and I I, I, I try to hold space. You know, for everybody really, because I understand confusion. I understand not being used to what might seem like a newer concept to someone in the Western world. And I'm going to explain that. Um, in her instance, you know, she's a woman. She had to come up through the literary world. She had to struggle to get voice. Uh, and it is undoubtedly harder for women, as it is in almost every other field, uh, sure. to establish themselves. But she managed to not only do that, but to 
rise to the levels of becoming a self-made billionaire. Yeah. Right? And as a feminist, and in terms of feminist ideals, she's like, well, men have taken so much from us, you know, and now they are taking away our very womanhood by assuming womanhood. And I do not agree with that, and I will never agree with that. And so that is her position, and she has repeated herself on multiple times uh, about this very subject. The problem with her statement is that it is a negation of the validity of a trans person's identity. Because she is still saying that, well, it's a man calling themselves a woman, so therefore stealing womanhood and all that we have experienced, all that we have sacrificed, all that we have suffered, he just gets to take it because he says so. Hmm. And I'm not okay with that. And I will never be okay with that. I get it. I do. I get it. I understand that. You know, as a, as a personal viewpoint, do I agree? I don't, um, and uh, but it's okay for her to have that opinion. I would talk to her about it if I could, um, even after calling her out. Um, she might be calling we'll, the yeah, podcast. We'll, yeah, we'll call. We'll put her in touch right? with yeah, you. Yeah, right? absolutely. But you know, um, but the problem is that having that much audience and having that much power and to say these things. There's a responsibility. There it is. Uh, to say these things to a broader audience who will then take this to the next level, um, to the level that what happened absolutely you know, uh, three days ago, uh, that's the responsibility and that's the problem with that opinion. Now, uh, when I talk about this being a, you know, people are not used to something that is new. Uh, I hope you don't mind me taking this to this direction now. Anywhere you want to go. Uh, but, you know, uh, I am a nerd for a lot of things, and I'm a nerd for this as well, and it has something to do with sort of, you know, you had asked me about my ancestry and so on. So there is a, um, there is a belief uh, by you know, certainly right-wing conservatives and also just everyday people that the concept of trans identities is is a new one, right? Something that is a neoliberal concept that's come up in the last few years, it didn't exist before, and what is this stuff anyways, right? Here's the reality, is that, and this is the reason why I say I come under the umbrella, but I don't necessarily ascribe to uh, that word. Um, trans is a Latin word that comes from uh, on the other side. Uh, that's what it means. Uh, cis, by the way, C-I-S, pronounced cis, means on this side. So a trans person is a person, uh, usually in the language of the English language of using a transgendered person, is a person who is one sex or one gender, rather, that matches their sex that they don't identify with and they identify to the other side. Um, that's how you get the word transgender. And then a cisgendered person is a person who identifies with their assigned sex at birth. In other words, they feel like they are the gender that they assigned, that they are assigned, excuse me. So they are cisgendered or on this side. Um, okay, that's just a little bit of word nerd stuff. Mm -hmm. um, this is not a new concept. Uh, there are 
many cultures that already had trans identities or third genders. And of those uh, cultures, Polynesian cultures, of which is part of my heritage, had third genders millennia before contact with Eastern Europeans. So I don't know if you knew that. Um, so Polynesians made their migration, we're talking like a couple thousand BC, starting, moving to Tonga and places like that from Asia. But by the time they've spread out and by the time East, uh, sorry, Europeans just encountered them as early as the 1500s and then much more in the 1700s, they already had third genders well established within their communities. Um, Hawaiians have uh, a third gender that they call mahu, which loosely translated in Hawaiian means in the middle. Usually men that identify as female or as something in the middle, uh, or like right between the two in the middle, which is uh, what I am. Uh, and then all Tahitians have this too, and Tongans, ha uh, I don't know if Tongans have it, um, but several of the Polynesian communities historically have always had this. And so for them, if you think about this, you go back to the 1700s when, you know, European missionaries came, white European settlers, and they brought with them uh, their, you know, various Christian religions, and they're like, okay, you people who have no clothes on, uh, um, I, uh, you know, i.e. savages, here's how it is, here's the world, here's where you fit in the world, we bring all this technology, we also bring this religion, and it has no place for your third gender, so you need to stop that. Uh, and in fact, they did ban those third genders in several of the places where they encountered it. So there's a history just from the Polynesian standpoint of trans identities. It is not new, it is not neoliberal ideology, it is something millennia old and long before Europeans, what Europeans showed up, and their idea of what binary gender is, is actually a new idea at that time. So you have to kind of like take that into perspective. And I try to tell people that to try to help them understand that it is not some new thing that was just invented. Uh, if, if in any way that helps them get their head around it uh, and to think that it's not a fad of some sort. So that's one of the things I try to tell people. One of the things I try to tell people, and I don't want to get into the medicalization of, um, of trans identities because that's a, another road you don't want to go down necessarily because it has a problematic side to it as well. But it does turn out that through um, post-mortem studies on trans, the brains of transgendered people, that they have brains much more resembling the gender of their mm -hmm. identity than they do of their assigned uh, sex at birth. And they have also done MRI studies where their brain activity also much more resembles the brain activity of the gender that they um, identify with. So that will tell you something. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Now, it's good, but then on the other hand, what you're doing is you're medicalizing a condition of a person's autonomy. And it does not capture people who might be in the middle which like Mahu people might be like, or non-binary people might be like, where they're just in the center of it. It does not capture that because they, while they fall under the term trans, they are not crossing over 
from one gender to the other. They simply exist somewhere in the middle. And a non-binary person might be an agender person, might be a gender fluid person, might be, uh, you know, uh, might be any number of things. And that's a little bit harder to pin down. And if you start medicalizing um, uh, what they call biological essentialism, if you start applying biological essentialism to an explanation of what transness is, you do start excluding a whole lot of people. And the other thing that you open it up to is the thought that it is a disorder, which has already been treated that way in, in previous times, just like homosexuality, a disorder that can be cured perhaps or perhaps be treated. And we know how, what a dark road that takes us down. So this is the problem with biological essentialism and why I don't like to resort to that, but I almost can't help but point it out sometimes to just try to make people understand that there's a lot of ways uh, that you can understand that this is real as opposed to what J.K. Rowling says. Now... <clears throat> can I ask you something personally? You can on a public show. Go well, for that's it. up to you. <laughs> um, when you sort of what, did, what did did you know this sort of thing about yourself when you were very very young, or did it come into how how does that how does that happen? And well, my real uh, wonder is how a parent deals with a child that's dealing with this and how that how they know to wait till they're 18 to do anything more or to oh. you know can we go there <laughs> if we I can't f- that's... I, f- I feel like i'm on a joe rogan show now. <laughs> no no <laughs> hey no, you no, brought no, it no. up no we're, we're in that we're in that dangerous territory now we no don't no have no, to, I, no, you know, no i will i will talk about it uh hey there's a funny thing i like to do now um Oh, I wish I remembered the name of this photographer. There's a photographer down in the U.S. and he did this photo series where he took, he reversed a bunch of situations. He had a bunch of Hispanic women. No, he had a bunch of Korean women sitting in like pedicure chairs, like looking at their iPhones and reading magazines ah. with white women doing their pedicures. Yes. He had, a, he had a Hispanic woman sitting on a couch with her miniature poodle. Um, talking on the phone with her, uh, like a white uh, maid, maid like cleaning. I can't, I can't remember that. Huh. And, and and when you look at these images, you're like, they shouldn't be so jarring, and yet every one of them is jarring. You look at this, looks weird. Shows you how programmed we are, and how sure. used to, to things uh, the way they are. You know what I mean? So I, I said this to sort of lay out this thing. What I sometimes like to ask people is, is you know, kind of like, uh, you know, hey, uh, when did you first realize you were straight? Hmm. Just, just, just a second. <laughs> I think I was in grade five. I, I never discussed Her that. name was... Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. But you know what I mean? It's like to, to, the, to the heteronormative world, they never, ever consider that question the question that you asked me is from a heteronormative and cisnormative worldview. I understand that. And I'm, yes. I'm not offended by it. I just want to tell you that I'm not no, offended no, by it. Yeah, but, but isn't it interesting it. when I ask you that question, you're like, I don't get it. I mean, isn't it just normal? <laughs> at one point I looked at a girl and I got a little bit tingly about it. And, you know, because... Tingly, that, I felt myself turning to stone. <laughs> okay, well, whatever the case may be, right? The, the point, I started sweating, you know, it's like, well, that's when you knew. Right. Right? Yeah, and it's not that I didn't think that you knew necessarily or something of the sort when you were young. 
Um, I, I really am wondering more when you came to terms with it. Mm. Oh, that's a complicated question. Um, I knew that I was not heterosexual, but I, but I'm also autistic. Don't forget. So I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what sexual orientation was. I thought it was normal to be curious about all genders. Mm. When I was eight, nine, 10, when I first started having thoughts about it, I'm like, I'm curious about, you know, her, but I might also be curious about him. I didn't have any other in-between genders at the time, but um, that's how I felt growing up. And I didn't talk to anybody about it. I did not know that that was not normal. That's the funny thing. Well, no, Um, that makes perfect sense though. Right. It's my internal world. So I'm just kind of like, I don't know. I feel funny, tingly things, but for different people as in humans, not as in gender so much. But see, that's a, that's completely natural that you felt tingly for people. Sir, tingly you, for no, people. No one was telling to you To me, other. that makes a lot of right. sense. Yeah. Uh, it was more skewed towards uh, female gendered people at that time, I will say. But it wasn't exclusive to that. So I grew up with that. At some point, I must have realized, usually through... Uh, you know, homophobic remarks in schoolyards and, and jokes that people tell, not anything overt, not anything directed at me because I've always been cis-passing and um, hetero-passing, I guess, straight-passing. I didn't. It's not a performance. It's just how it happened. Until now, I kind of, I'm a little bit flamboyant sometimes. But, you know, um, <clears throat> I think you've noticed. We but, talked about the shoes. Right, we talked about the shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, Oh, I lost my train of thought. Um, uh, where were we? Well, you, when you were a child. Oh, yeah. So at that time it was orientation. But once I realized that, you know, thoughts towards same sex anyways was bad, uh, you know, then that was when I started sort of, sort of suppressing that without even knowing I was suppressing it. I didn't even, I just didn't think about it anymore for a long time until I became a young adult, and then there's no way you can not have it. It just, if it's your nature, it will come back. Sure. And so then it came back later on, like, oh, I guess, yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, very autistically, I perhaps didn't realize, I, I, I guess I experienced it as a child, 8, 9, 10. Uh, and then I didn't really kind of look at it until I was a young adult. Okay. And then here comes a funny part of the story, which is very personal, but uh, then I started experimenting with same-sex, I call it relationships, that's a bit far, but I also noticed that I would clash with, uh, well, gay men. I would clash with them again and again and again and again. I'm like, just wow, we just do not have very much in common besides, you know, what you obviously expect to have in common. But beyond that, I did not. Um, in fact, you know, since coming out, um, I, I tell this story sometimes and since coming out professionally a few years ago, it's only been about four or five years now. Um, you know, I have been called, uh, a number of uh, slurs, uh, everything from, you know, the F word to, to a sex criminal, to a pervert, to a whatever. 
All by gay men. Really? All by gay men online. Because they don't uh, like what I am. I don't understand. Yeah, what does that even mean? Right, well, because I self-identify as, you know, Mahu, and I self-identify as pansexual. And for a lot of gay men, they're like, well, what the fuck is that? So... Interestingly, huh. you know, they have fought for their rights and they have gotten there. And and again, I again, I try to hold space for that because that's sort of like the woman thing with J.K. Rowling. Correct. It's like the same idea. Yes, it's it's about punching down. So you know, gay men have struggled uh, <clears throat> horribly, you know, through different societies and whatever, and have faced a lot of persecution and violence and whatever else and 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 not everywhere but here in north america let's say and a lot of other, some other developed countries they have gained a certain amount of legitimacy uh and peace from that legitimacy everything from like just being left alone not being beaten up in the street to to getting married and having marital rights and and all that stuff and it's a wonderful thing i celebrate that i really do um but what happens is that for some people is that we sometimes adopt the behavior of our oppressors and so for them they become gatekeepers and they're like well we have this now and who are you people and you people are weird and it's just like i try to remind them that the community is much too small although it's much bigger than everybody thinks uh for us to treat each other that way i think it's a terrible travesty to gain some legitimacy and power and respect in the world and then to turn around and abuse a smaller subgroup i i don't like that very much i don't think it's very good i think that is something that they should reconsider you know but that was that had been my experience uh you know um since coming out this is like a long um tangent man. no you know what people <laughs> I, we're here for in, the tangents man in my opinion uh the world needs to hear this stuff so i whatever no, no, i agree and I, now i applaud your uh yeah i think that now i and i don't know i'm gonna say anything right or wrong but i think that a lot of the struggle with people nowadays is that they're 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 really easy about a lot of things but they're also being told that they're either left or right or that they're this or that there's so many titles being thrown around and nobody's allowed to live in like a gray area or have an opinion um to some degree you know and and you know you can be like perfectly one way about this and then just one aspect of something that you don't like or you disagree with or or whatever it makes you that guy out of nowhere and 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 sometimes uh it's a lack of education and sometimes perhaps it might be a point um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. do you find that don't you you must sit there as well to finish the point this clash that i kept having as you know in this community i'm kind of like why does this keep happening Mm -hmm. until i had the revelation that oh i think i understand what the problem is is that they view me as a gay man or as i've been accused of um a gay man that doesn't have the courage quote unquote to come out or to admit being gay the fuck yep which is their experience so you again to hold space for it you have to understand here's here's the arch 
like an experiential arch for a lot of gay men that let's, for instance, grow up in a rural community. You're growing up, everything is fine. You start having sexual thoughts, you have sexual thoughts for the same sex. But you know, from watching movies, from listening to music, from whatever else that, that the love story is about between boy and girl, man and woman. Uh, if you go to some organized religion, then you're probably taught the same thing. So you suppress those things. And then when you get old enough, you will assume the behavior of a, a heteronormative person and you will date a girl. You might even marry a girl. You might even have kids. At some point, you're going to figure out that it's not right for you and you break off from that. Maybe you go to the city, maybe whatever, and then you come out. So to you, if that is your experiential arc, then you're like, yeah. And in the middle of that arc, at some point, you might even take a half measure. You might go, well, you know, uh, I know I'm not straight, but maybe I'm bisexual, right? And you sit in that space because it's a little more comfortable than going all the way over mm. to the other side and then eventually because <clears throat> if you are gay you go all the way over to the other side and then now you have the wisdom of experience and you look back and you go yes you know you need to just have the courage and just you know man up and just admit that you are a gay man except that that is not what i am <laughs> so and then they get angry at you for it right if you say you're a bi, then they're like, make a fucking choice. You're, Fuck either, you're, you're See, either straight all this proves or you're to me gay. Everybody has a fucking opinion. Right. And your opinion doesn't fucking matter. Right. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's part of it, right? So, But but I, I again, I hold space for it because experientially that is what happened to them. Yeah. Right? And, and, and they, so then they are critical of my position of saying that I actually am into all genders. I'm attracted to humans, not genders or genitals of a particular uh you know structure so they don't like that and then after a while is when i realized that oh well that was because i'm not cisgendered it's the explanation for a lot of things in my life and so that is how i arrived at that and that has actually been a much more recent thing because once you apply that template you go well that actually explains a lot of things yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. But I mean, it must, you must feel pretty good. Well, I think the F word stands for fantastic. Uh, oh, thank <laughs> you. Take, I've known you a long time, brother. And uh, uh, I think you're fucking incredible. Oh, well, thank you so much. No, it's a secret. I'm not telling everybody. Okay. <laughs> good. Let's no. just keep it among the three no, of no, us. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's just true. That's why you're here, brother. Uh, because I've respected you for a long, long, long time. Thank you. Well, Tig, yep. uh, normally when we get to sort of what feels like a bit of an ending, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. we get the person that's sitting across from me and Randy to sign Hopefully. the table. If they want, but nobody has said no yet, and we're really hoping you don't either. You're 25. You can't say no. <laughs> I cannot say no. And as evidenced by the table, you can see that if you like, you can draw a picture. I can. And you can do it anywhere you want, too. You know? The only one who designated a spot was Sean, right here in the middle. Oh, but yeah. He owns that, eh? Yeah. Yeah. But, uh... <laughs> okay, so it's something I can't read. <laughs> 
So the, those of you listening on Spotify, this this is Tig's uh, uh, Sharpie. Yeah. Scraping across the... All right. That's me. But here. <laughs> Someday I'll look at it and go, who the fuck did that? By the way, your arm, the, the, the half sleeve you got going on there is Yeah, that's awesome. a trip. Yeah, that is by... Uh, for letting me ramble off oh no brothers our pleasure um the sleeve is by uh uh, all of my tattoos are by native polynesians that's a rule okay Um, wow and the the sleeve here is by a native polynesian uh, named patu uh he was a like many kids end up in tahiti was a street kid uh, he was caught up in a lot of things. Uh, there's a huge, uh, at least 20% of native Tahitians live uh, under the poverty line, and many only just above. Uh, this is the thing about a lot of the sort of the idea of Polynesia being paradise. It's a paradise for sure for visitors and hmm. for honeymooners. It might not be a paradise for the natives there as a result of the long hangover of colonialism uh anyhow he was a street kid he you know was into a lot of things that perhaps he shouldn't have been uh, he told me when he did my my ink he said you know i i didn't even speak tahitian until six years ago and i said what did you speak french he goes yes exactly I, that, we were only ever taught french we're you're not even learning your own culture and he said he discovered he's a he's an award-winning tattoo artist by the way his work is just phenomenal it's so clean and he discovered tattooing and, and he got into it. And since then, he's been um, teaching street kids um, Tahitian and uh, teaching them how to play uh, native Tahitian instruments. Uh, he's, he's, quite a, he's quite a fabulous person and I'm honored to, to wear his art on my body. Nice. Incredible. Yeah. Nice. Is there a story? Uh, the story. Well, um, I will say that all of the tattoos on my body, there's only three so far, three large pieces, um, none of them did I plan for the way they look. Uh, in Polynesian culture, you're supposed to uh, go to the, the tattoo artists. They have different names depending on the culture. Uh, and when you go there, they know your life story hmm. uh, because you're probably in the same tribe. Uh, and they, they don't give you the tattoo you ask for, you don't in fact ask. They give you the tattoo you're supposed to have. Whoa, it's, it's the one I love that. that. Uh, that's incredible. It's way better than what I got. <laughs> it's the tattoo that, that tells your life story of, of, of any achievements, of, of being, uh, could be being a, a parent, uh, could be being a warrior or whatever. Uh, and so, you know, I, to him, I went to him and I told him a brief recap of my life story and things like that. And so he put on here what he felt was right some of these things like these things over here are all warriors because of Mm -hmm. years of strife and fighting and being in martial arts and so on Um, these this motif which appears in a couple of places here and here these are the eyes of tiki which are basically you know just being watched over by the gods Um, this one is a connection to heaven um, which although i'm not religious by connection to a higher yeah, hundred percent. Perhaps right. He says it doesn't. Spiritual have it has to be. nothing to do with right. religion. Uh, this is ocean, as you can probably tell, because it's waves. 
this is earth so this connection to nature yeah. ocean and earth it's beautiful these are shark teeth and this is you wow know, that's interesting bravery no. this is fecundity uh which men cannot be but so on women it would mean you know the ability to bear lots of children but if you place this symbol on a man or a male presenting person uh, then this becomes a fecundity in terms of creativity. So having lots of creativity and creative ideas. Yeah. Incredible. Wow, man. Yeah, I'm now, I don't I'm... mean to diminish the, the artist or anything, but uh, Moana's move, <laughs> you know? <laughs> if they do, yes, yes, Cartoon. yes. Uh, Maui's... Uh, or Maui's, yeah, Maui's. Yeah, yeah sorry, you're right. His you're right. Uh, his tattoos on Moana do move. Um, I don't know if... if oh, they uh, move? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. They come to life and they, they do look... They're awesome. I, I wish... Kind of like uh, on an old film, if you guys remember, The Illustrated Man. I don't. I, I don't know that. Yeah. The Illustrated Man. Yeah. That's phenomenal. That's awesome. Yeah. Tig, I cannot thank you enough for coming down to my home and uh, doing this with Andrew and I. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been it's been uh, fun. Mutual. It's been fun. Yeah, man. Just, thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Appreciate it so thank much. You. Okay, cut it, D.